Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. My guest today is Jacob Schell, who is Associate Professor of Geography and Urban Studies at Temple University and a scholar of transportation and infrastructure, animal geographies and transport animals, and um, particularly elephants in Burma, which I hope we'll get into some. Um, and uh, I believe the, the phrase that's in the subheading of your, your first book is subversive mobilities. Um, I don't know mm-hmm. if that was your coinage or if it was a, an editor who... Once yeah, that, that was but, that was that yeah. was mine. Yeah, yeah, I I, I kind of like that. I mean, it's an interesting phrase, um, and it might be a way to kind of get into. So, first of all, welcome and thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on. I'm I'm really excited um, to talking with you. Yeah. So, um, you know, the the initially we had sort of, uh, you know, had some interesting exchanges on Twitter for a while, but. Um, we sort of had an exchange around the time of the, you know, what seems like distant history, the the Canadian trucker convoy, which obviously ties into many of your interests and could be seen as a kind of, you know, at, at least one instantiation of this notion of subversive mobilities. And, uh, you know, that was sort of what, um, what initially got us thinking about having this conversation. So, I was curious if we could, you know, again, revisit that uh, hugely controversial event at the time, which, you know, has now kind of been um, relegated to uh, ancient history by subsequent events in Ukraine, which I think we'll also be getting into. But, you know, perhaps, um, you know, if, if you could kind of just talk about what what your research has has explored over the years and, and what light it might shed on that event, um, which, you know, I think everybody sort of developed an opinion on, but, um, you know, you're, you're in kind of a, a unique position to comment on it, I would say. So let's, Mm -hmm. let's start there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It it does really feel like getting into a time machine to like, what, six weeks ago. I I feel like, I feel like it was basically mid February, maybe it was a little early February when Trudeau uh, invoked emergency powers. I think it was really quite recent. Um, and I thought that was an extraordinary thing to happen. Um, and well, just to explain some things about me, maybe uh, the fact I am half Canadian, um, though I've never, maybe when I was a little kid, I lived in Canada, but I've never really lived in Canada, but I am half Canadian, half my family's Canadian. So I think for that reason, probably um, the the whole saga with the trucker convoy and the, and the, and the crackdown that followed probably resonated especially strongly for me, though I think it resonated for a lot of people uh, in the U.S. Uh, with no particular connection to Canada. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I am, a tra- as you said, I'm a transportation geographer um, and I'm kind of a Marxist trained transportation geogra- uh, geographer. Um, Marxism, as in many other academic fields, it looms really large and certain parts of geography and what modern geographers do. That's just how it is, like for better or worse. Um, I had 
really excellent teachers in grad school in that regard. Um, I, I don't certainly don't regret uh, one, you know, one, one day of, of what that experience, which is basically like in the late 2000 aughts, like what that was like. Um, it felt kind of like interesting and dangerous back then when like the, the, uh, the Iraq war was happening. When I started grad school, Bush was still president. It all felt very different, uh, really. But yeah, I was really struck by the fact that not very many of my Marxist geographer friends were even remotely sympathetic with the trucker protesters in Canada. Um, and they weren't even particularly disturbed, at least if they were, they weren't publicly disturbed. They may have had their own private feelings about it, uh, about the way in which uh, the, tr uh, the trucker protest was pretty, uh, was, was cracked down upon in pretty extreme terms. Like the closure of bank accounts, I thought was like an extraordinary move. I don't think I've ever really heard of anything else uh, quite like that. I, I almost would have preferred that Trudeau just like, just send in some toughs, like some Pinkertons to like beat some people up. And, but of course that wouldn't be his style, right? It has to be this kind of like, uh, th th this like nonviolent, but somehow much worse and more profound form of oppression where you can't even go to your own bank account. And there were stories, I don't know how widespread this really was. There were stories about even family members of protesters who maybe just sent like a hundred dollars so that their, you know, their nephew could like, you know, get a bite to eat while they were in Ottawa, even they um, had trouble accessing their funds. I think all of that is now kind of blown over, I think, or maybe not all of it. There's probably people who are having trouble. So I was, I was pretty, I, I sensed that this was coming for a long time, that during a conflict like that, where the kind of powerful institutional forces that were sort of associated with the public health state, with the Trudeau government, or, you know, uh, liberal equivalents of the Trudeau government in other Anglosphere countries like the UK or the United States or Australia, et cetera. Um, if they were kind of in one block and then in the other block, you had this more kind of working class movement, but that has some certain kind of um, uh, maybe especially culturally kind of right wing tendencies, um, though right wing here doesn't actually mean anything particularly solid it's just kind of like this this sort of tribalistic signifier that in uh if that if those were the two choices probably a lot of academic marxists would either kind of be like oh well these truckers must be fascists which i did hear some people including colleagues say things like that or they would just they would just lay low just like i'm staying out of this i'm pretending it's not happening even though from a certain point of view especially if you're like a marxist geographer interested in transportation it's kind of the most interesting thing to happen um certainly in canada in a very long time like i don't know a half century maybe more did you know there was this gigantic violent separatist rebellion that happened in quebec during the 70s where hundreds of bombs went off in montreal americans mostly don't know about this so that was yeah, interesting yeah yeah, yeah. That yeah, was interesting. Something of that, but yeah. And I'm not. I'm not sure the trucker protest is more interesting than that. But it's pretty damn interesting thing to have happened in Canada. Um, but I don't think that my uh, sort of um, radically inflected, epistemologically liberationist uh, geographer colleagues who are especially interested in mobility studies and transportation and things like that, which tend to loom large as themes for geographers in general, for sort of obvious spatial reasons. I don't think they'll ever write about it. It's just, it's, it's too awkward because they don't want to side with the truckers, but they also kind of don't want to be explicitly celebrating the, like the, the, the closure of bank accounts and things like that. Um, 
so yeah, it was, it was, um, it was making me pretty angry uh, the whole time. I thought that there would be more people I knew maybe from like my grad school time and from my discipline, at least taking to social media to say that they were upset. But, you know, even like in the, in the squad, like our, our four American politicians that we refer to as the squad, um, the only one who said something critical of Trudeau during that affair was Ilhan Omar, who's usually the one who's a little bit more like, no, I'm just going to say, I'm just going to say what everyone's thinking. And the others sort of kept away from, from the whole, the whole sort of topic. Um, so yeah, that, that was, uh, that was, so, so that was, that was one sort of level at which uh, I was paying attention to what was going on with the Troco protest, which is the failure of the sort of contemporary uh, kind of Marxian left to kind of follow through on what their stated theory of the world had always said they would do, or at least say uh, in a situation just like that. And for myself, since you know you had asked me about my own research, yeah, during grad school, I was really interested in um, what I was calling the subversive mobility of transportation workers uh, who, um, in different uh, kinds of historical examples that I, were, I was interested in, these are mostly from the early 20th century, um, had kind of taken on the regimes they were unhappy with by making use of their specialized transportation knowledge in order to uh, do things like um, smuggle messages to each other, um, sometimes commit acts of sabotage, um, sometimes things which are, are even more uh, unsavory than that. A particular example I talk about a lot, um, this is in my first book, which you had mentioned, called, called Transportation and Revolt, is uh, the Fenians, um, who were very strong among the canal system of the United Kingdom, Ireland, Canada, and the United States. And these were basically uh, Irish insurrectionists who wanted Ireland out of the uh, British Empire. And by today's standards, you know, were they left-wing, were they right-wing? It sort of depends how you define those things. They were left-wing in the sense that they're, anti, they're anti-colonialist, right? Um, but they also tend to be sort of staunch religious sectarians. So um, Marx himself didn't really like the Fenians because they weren't, they weren't communists, that's for sure. Um, they wanted Ireland out and they wanted Ireland to be Catholic. So, you know, that's not exactly something that Marx himself would, would support. They totally fascinated me. And one of the kind of uh, raids they ran um, using canal boats from the Erie Canal in order to cross uh, the lake border into Canada. Uh, this happened like the 1860s. Um, has these sort of weird resonances with what happened uh, with the trucker revolt where there's a sort of American involvement in part. There's a kind of global aspect to what's going on. That particular border between the U.S. and Canada is kind of at play. There was that moment during the Canadian trucker protest where I don't remember how long they managed to pull this off. They shut down the Ambassador Bridge, which connects Windsor and Detroit for, I don't know, what was it like maybe five or six days? Um, I think it's about 30 percent of freight trade that passes between the United States and Canada passes over that bridge, which, by the way, is a privately owned bridge, which is itself kind of extraordinary, a massive suspension bridge like that. And it's it's privately owned. Um, yeah. So I thought these these kinds of resonances uh, were, were also really fascinating to me. And, yeah, I totally thought, well, the trucker protest really should be thought of as a kind of a, a, a 2020s era example of what I would, I would always have thought of as subversive mobility. Um, but I also know at the same time that in the kind of academic milieu that I'm in, and I think you're in too, that subversive mobility, that phrase is supposed to suggest something that's left-wing in a partisan sense. And so because 
the politics, uh, the sort of partisan politics surrounding the trucker protests don't kind of stack up in that way. And fewer and fewer um, forms of class tension today do, I think, which is, I think, is one of the big sort of intellectual crises for the left right now. And anyway, because it doesn't sort of stack up that way, I think most people who have been very sort of sympathetic with my papers when I give them the conferences, if they heard me say that the truckers in Canada were an example of subversive mobility, they, they, they would be, they wouldn't be happy. They would disagree. They would say, no, these are like the, the hired lackeys of Texan oil billionaires or something like that. Something along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, trucking is, I mean, more broadly, it's, I, you know, I'm not by any means an expert in any of this, but I, I've read some other things about it as an industry in recent years and particularly the way that it's been. I mean, so on one hand, you know, one of the kind of left, the sort of canned left responses to this was like, oh, well, there are a lot of them are owner operators. So they're really, you know, petty bourgeois, so they can't be revolutionaries. Right. Now, you know, by that standard, you know, the, this given, given the, the trend, uh, you know, for thinking about just transportation of, you know, the gig economy and I mean, Uber and I mean, the, you know, the whole sort of stratagem of a great deal of capital has been to um, sort of deproletarianize in the sense of of turning wage workers into independent contractors. Right. So that's that's what you've had with, you know, Uber, Uber, Lyft, et cetera. Um, so and in fact, you had them explicitly demanding in in this California valid initiative, which succeeded to, to you know, prevent them from being recognized as wage laborers. So, mm -hmm. you know, so the notion that, um, you know, sort of the, the only way to understand capital is through its exploitation of wage labor seems rather yeah, and antiquated it, and along those lines, but yeah. Well, it, it's also, it's, it's a kind of, it, it's an astonishing betrayal of all these complicated theoretical ideas about how to think about labor that, um, th that, that Mar Marxists, theoreticians in the social sciences, like David Harvey is a name that looms, used to loom very large amongst uh, radically inflected geographers. They like spent their whole year, uh, their whole careers trying to complicate that exact kind of cartoon of what uh, labor exploitation looks like. The idea that like uh, to be a true worker, you wouldn't own anything as if like those mill workers in Yorkshire and like the early 19th century didn't own the shoes on their feet. I mean, maybe some of them didn't own the shoes on their feet, but I bet a great many of them owned something in their lives. And as, as you're alluding to, that's the structure of ownership. When you don't have a huge amount of capital to accompany the ownership, that becomes kind of part of the strategy by which you wind up getting stuck uh, in an exploitation uh, cycle. Uh, uh, and yeah, for, 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 for people who have like probably written whole dissertations about that topic to suddenly forget any of that, any of those thoughts ever existed and just say, well, look, I mean, some of these truckers own their trucks. So, you know, I, I guess, I guess they're, they're just, they're just kulaks or whatever. Um, I thought that was, was pretty extraordinary and, and just revealed a, uh, a lack of consistency, uh, a, a sort of a selective lack of intellectual imagination about what we're looking at. That was one yeah. of the kind of canned strategies. The other one was to call them all white supremacists because, I mean, I'm sure the trucking industry in Canada is disproportionately white. And so you could, you could conjure up optics of like all white protesters. Um, and not that this should make a difference. I guess it does make a difference. When you actually go looking a little harder, you find that there's a bunch of South Asian Canadians, I guess especially Sikh Canadians tend to actually um, loom disproportionately large 
um, in the trucking industry in Canada. Um, and probably right, and you, with, yeah. And, and so, you see this in the U.S. too, that, I mean, the, you know, you, you'll be at a truck stop somewhere in the middle of nowhere and they'll have like this surprisingly good Indian food because the, right. the South Asian presence in the industry is so significant. So they've sort of created this, this network. Um, and the people who, who say that, oh, well, because it's uh, because there's some white truckers, therefore it's white supremacists. They're not quite smart or imaginative enough to say, okay, fine. There's some Sikhs. Well, then it's Aryan supremacists. Right. They, they don't quite, they don't quite know right. about, they don't yeah. know about that whole formula, right. which would right. make it a little yeah. more interesting if they did. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. No, but clearly, clearly what was going on was something. Um, I don't think it was like a pure, kind of uh, Marxian proletarian event. Uh, I, I think that formula always has to be understood as just like one way of looking at things and reality is always gonna be more complicated. But um, in, in a lot of ways, this is about uh, a, a big important part of the Canadian workforce, transportation workers, some of whom own their own trucks, um, getting uh, extremely upset about diktats that were coming out of a uh, out of a, a state leader that has kind of never been a particularly impressive state leader, um, that didn't quite make sense. Uh, Canada's vaccination rate was, it, it is, and was, you know, back in January and February, extremely high uh, within the Western world. Um, I don't, I don't exactly, I remember looking this up. I don't have like the rankings in front of me, but I remember it was something like if you go looking for Western states that have a higher vaccination rate, it's like only Portugal has a higher vaccination rate than Canada. And so therefore, and this is before uh, Trudeau um, started requiring that the truckers all had to get vaccinated if they wanted to go back and forth across that border. Um, and so it's just, it was an odd decision. And I don't think a particularly defensible decision um, given that, you know, Canada has COVID problems and it has public health problems, but the vaccination rate doesn't seem to be one of the big problems that they have. It seems to be other kinds of issues that they're having. Maybe there's you know, incompetent execution within the public health bureaucracy, possibly. Um, and so, you know, I think most of the truckers knew this, like they're not dumb. They can look up what the vaccination rate is. They can say, well, wait a minute, the country I'm in is already highly vaccinated. And yet we still seem to be having more of these awful waves of COVID. Um, it doesn't seem like this vaccine as effect, it is as effective as it was originally sold as, as, as are sort of presented as being, um, I don't want to get it. And I shouldn't have to get it if I want to do my job in which I'm relatively isolated inside of my truck anyway. Um, this is a condition of work I don't want to deal with. I'm kind of scared of the vaccine. I think these are probably a lot of the thoughts, um, some of them rational, some of them maybe not so rational going through the heads of truckers. And so they protested. It seems like it's a very sort of straightforwardly classifiable as a worker protest over work conditions that they found unacceptable. Um, and I think it should be, should be understood in that light. Yeah, and you know, again, as I said, I'm I'm now a uh, trucking industry expert, but you know, this also resonated with things that I've been reading over the years about the increasing kind of system of, and I don't know how this compares in Canada to the U.S. I mean, I assume there's quite a bit of integration between the, the systems um, as they operate in the two countries, but um, given the the volume of trade, but you know, at least within the U.S. context, there's been this introduction of quite radical sort of digital control in the trucking industry, right? That that basically they are 
GPS tracked. And, and all of this is, you know, I mean, going back some ways is sort of has been imposed on the basis of safe, you know, of safety concerns. Right. But, but basically they're um, increasingly tracked at every moment. Um, the hours, you know, like the hours that they're required to break for sleep are extremely kind of rigidly enforced through this kind of GPS tracking. And this has sort of deprived them of a great deal of autonomy mm-hmm. um, in recent years, as I understand it. And so, you know, I mean, two things about that. One, you know, it does seem like that industry has been at the forefront of a kind of, um, you know, an, a new type of, of digital control that, um, you know, that I would think about in terms of like Deleuze's uh, postscript on the societies of control, right, where it's, um, this, you know, you know, mobility is accompanied by sort of permanent tracking and, and sort of integration into the system of tracking, right? So, you know, it's, you know, I mean, the example he gives when he writes that 30 years ago is um, uh, ankle, you know, that instead of being confined in prison, you have a sort of um, digital tag on an ankle bracelet, right? And mm-hmm. so similarly, there's this kind of um, this way that the, the, the regulation of this industry has meant that basically if, if you work in it, then you're, you're, you know, permanently surveilled and your, your daily life is kind of constricted in all of these ways. And I mean, that's interesting insof- insofar as it's kind of a, a bellwether or a sort of canary in the coal mine of like some of the kinds of things that have at least been attempted to you know, that, that um, various states have attempted with different degrees of success to, to introduce in response to the pandemic, right? That, that basically, um, I mean, where, you know, you probably see the most advanced version in China, right? Where basically your, your mobility is, is conditional upon your having this kind of pass on your phone, and then since you're being GPS tracked at every moment, you're, you're, you're being contact traced. So as soon as you come into contact with someone who then tests positive, your phone code goes yellow and therefore your access to public or, or red and therefore your access to public space is limited. Right. And so right. it does seem like in some ways the trucking industry is, as I understand it has been sort of at the forefront of these developments and, you know, long pre COVID, um, and these were kind of introduced on the, on the basis of, you know, concerns about road safety. Um, and, you know, that I remember reading about, you know, truckers in the U.S. protesting and trying to lobby against these regulations that sort of required this, um, this kind of constant tracking and surveillance so, you know, I, I do wonder, again, I don't know enough about it. I think I read one thing that sort of placed the, the, the recent protests in this larger context of this just kind of increasing loss of autonomy where your life is kind of, as a trucker, is, is extremely constrained and regulated and, and surveilled. Yeah, and it, so, I mean, it's part, of a, it's part of a historical pattern with transportation systems. This is something that, that, that my first book, which we've mentioned, uh, gets into a lot. The historical pattern is that when you have two different kinds of transportation and they sort of both have economic pluses and minuses that maybe kind of balance out, um, that 
uh, a ruling regime or investors will tend to go with the one in which the transport workers can be more effectively tracked and surveilled and controlled. And so this is the whole way in which um, in, in my research from, I mean, it's a, it's a, the research is like a decade, decade old now. It's not what I work on anymore. But that if you look at railroads and canals, which in a lot of ways in economic terms, they both have various trade-offs and, and are in many ways kind of equal. You can move a lot of very heavy things by canal very cheaply because water is naturally buoyant. And so it's really good for moving grain and coal. But of course, with railroads, you can move things faster. Um, but rail is not really as, as, as economically good for, for, for bulk items like grain and coal. So economically, it balances out. But if you look at the, this late 19th and to some degree early 20th century history, there was this recurring pattern where um, the threat that canal workers posed is that they were relatively more off grid. They had relatively more autonomy. They were living on their boats. They were usually taking their families with them on their boats. This is a, this is at least this is true in the in the British Isles and in in, in, uh, in Britain and, and Ireland. Um, and so they're really they, they just they tend to become associated with like smuggling networks and uh, various kinds of criminal trades while simultaneously um, uh, making money off of the uh, the transport of, of bulk goods for like the formal economy. But by contrast, railroad workers, they didn't really have very much of that kind of thing available to them. Um, and they had the power of the strike. There were some very important railroad strikes that happened uh, in the late 19th century. I think 1877 was the great railroad strike in the U.S. It, it, it's, it's sometime around then. Um, but on the whole, just speaking to, to what you're getting at, uh, the system tended to favor railroads over canals primarily, or at least this, this was my argument. Some people probably say it's secondarily or tertiarily or whatever. I say primarily because um, it's much easier to control and surveil uh, the railroad workers and make sure they're not just off you know, bringing their family along and forming God knows what kinds of um, fraternal and communal and familial and eventually political connections. Um, you can just sort of break their lives down to a particular surveilled chart of, 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 of where they're going and what they're doing and what they're bringing along with them. And I think to a large degree, what you're describing with the trucking industry, it's sort of part of that, that impulse. Like, how can we take this somewhat surveillable method of transportation. Trucks are very easy to see on the roads, um, but there's still, you know, there's so many of them that you know, the, the road system goes all over the place that they kind of have a lot of autonomy. How can we use this new kind of technology, um, you know, uh, GPS, satellite networks, et cetera, uh, to make uh, this transportation workforce into something which is more effectively surveilled? You and I think are probably coming out of slightly different kind of uh, theoretical um, kind of frameworks that overlap a lot. You mentioned Deleuze, who I, I have to say, like any kind of continental philosopher, I kind of avoided like the plague in grad school. But my, I, I think like James C. Scott, who actually winds up saying a lot of the same kind of stuff, just maybe kind of in a more, I don't know, kind of like commonsensical American fashion that appeals to me a little bit more. That was kind of where I was coming from. And it does kind of boil down to these issues pertaining to um, uh, surveillance, uh, I didn't really see the biological aspect of surveillance until the COVID era. I think people who came of age reading tons of Foucault were sort of shouting about this for decades and decades, that it was all going to come down to biopolitics and surveillance. Um, now, and then, you know, we're and kind then of they, here. Yeah. yeah. And then now they we're all, just, and then they they all forgot. About, right. And then they all forgot about it. Yeah. As I, as I wrote about last year. Um, yeah. You as wrote, did, that as was did in, your, what's that? 
you wrote about that in American Affairs, or yeah. was that in Chronicle? Like that was in American, yeah, Affairs. American Affairs. Yeah, that, that yeah, was a great piece. Thank um, you. But it's it's very parallel to what you're saying about the these kind of radical geographers who, you know, once the um, once the uh, the Canadian protest uh, convoy sort of started happening, we're like nowhere to be found because it, it really did. I mean, in fact, the ones who were somewhere to be found um, immediately got pilloried and canceled. It and makes you think, right? It makes you wonder. People. It makes you wonder what were their motivations all along? Like for the Foucauldians, what were their motivations in the 90s? Um, or for me, what were the motivations of the other David Harvey reading geographers back in like 2007, 8, 9? Why were there, what made their motivations different than my motivations such that the outcome now is that I'm really pissed off about what happened at the Canadian truckers, though I have my issues with some of the things that they were saying or asking for. I don't want to collapse the Canadian state or anything like that. I do have a big issue with the way in which the crackdown happened, as I said before. Anyways, how come that's the outcome I'm experiencing in my mind, but it doesn't seem to be the case for the people I was in seminar with? Like, it, it doesn't, I haven't quite wrapped my head around it yet. I, I, I find myself looking for the theories of the formation of like, you know, overproduced uh, sort of wannabe elite intellectuals and like to get, get it, to get across the, uh, to, just so I could understand what the, what the kind of normal structure of motivations is. So uh, to kind of uh, explain it, like Peter Turchin is the one who came up with the, the phrase overproduced elite, or maybe he borrows it from someone. Uh, I, I'm not sure. Yeah. I think he came up with it, um, but, but I could be wrong. Uh, at least he was the first person whose work I encountered it in. But yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, there there is kind of this larger question here, which is in a way the one that most obsesses me in the last couple of years, which is, you know, what you, you have this kind of, um, you know, and I think basically the people on the right who, for whom this is their beat, you know, completely misapprehend the whole situation because, you know, you have the, the formation of these different kind of radical you know, theoretical schools in the academy, but, you know, essentially they've sort of, you know, defanged themselves politically or they were already defanged in some way that um, that has become more explicit now that, I mean, you know, I, I, I've written sort of the comparison between um, the sort of uh, Gulf War, you know, the, the um, war on terror and Iraq war era and today, you know, where like Agamben was this hero and, you know, everybody kind of thought these theories were these great tools of critique of state power and so on. Um, but, you know, really people um, have kind of, I mean, I, I guess what I would say is a lot of these people have sort of accepted or, or owned up to their alignment with, with state power in a way that they, yeah, well, this is know, why I find previously. This is why <laughs> but, I find the Peter Turchin argument about overproduced elites. And what is the name of his book? Um, it, it, Ages it, it, of it, discord. Yeah, like, like like the one about about these particular cycles he perceives in American history, in, in particular. Um, I think yeah. he has another study that's focused on uh, the the English Civil War, but basically says the same thing about. Um, you wind up with a situation where uh, an elite class winds up essentially having too many kids. There aren't enough purchase within the structure of how the elite class is defined to absorb all these kids. You have overproduced elites. And then the overproduced elites wind up becoming, especially during their youth or their formative years, they wind up becoming attracted to 
theories that will help them kind of marshal certain uh, disaffected elements of the wider population against the existing elite structure to kind of loosen up some of those spots so that they open up. But then once they open up, um, this I don't think is something Turchin in particular says, but I think it's implicit in the argument. Once those slots do start opening up, if the original motivation was always to get one of those slots, then you'd expect that around this time there would begin to be a kind of uh, self-disentanglement from those particular radical theories if that was had actually been the original motivation to glom onto those theories. So again, I don't know if this is totally the right explanation, but I don't know. Maybe it's yeah, something it, over overproduced elite myself. I, I think I think yeah. he's really onto something. I think I think it, it it does a lot of aspects of that way of looking at things. Uh, I think do resonate pretty strongly. Oh yeah, I mean I I identify as an overproduced elite definitely, but um, I think uh, so. You know, even if I mean I have sort of some trouble. I have some criticisms of his kind of theory of cycles, but I don't want to get into that that much. But I think at minimum, what we could say is that within the institutional context of academia, what you had was a kind of. I mean, I don't know. I'd be interested to hear the particular sort of history of geography in this regard, because I sort of, I know more or less what it looks like in like literature and the humanities, but you have this history of sort of intra-institutional conflict between a sort of old guard that was gradually displaced or just, you know, retired and, and died off. Right. And this, um, you know, this struggle basically took a a, a sort of ideological and theoretical form, which was that, you know, essentially the struggle between all of these kind of continental philosophy ideas from the Frankfurt School up to, you know, sort of French post-structuralism being pitted against this kind of, um, I mean, the, basically these two kind of older modes of, of study, one of which was, um, you know, this kind of fusty, um, you know, sort of archival historical scholarship. And then the other of which was in its own time sort of cutting edge, which is this kind of new criticism, right, of the the 40s and 50s, where you, you had this kind of um, uh, ethos of like close attention to the text, right? And and I think in some ways that prepared the way for the, the sort of more radical um, ideas coming out of, of the continent. But Basically, you you know, you had this kind of generational battle between these younger academics who were trying to carve out a place for themselves in the system and sort of displace this older generation and and sort of discredit its its theoretical foundations. And then, you know, essentially they became the academic establishment. I mean, the, all those people who were sort of the young Turks of their era became just, you know, they, they all got the endowed chairs and, you know, almost all of them. And then, you know, there's an interesting exception with someone like Harold Bloom, who's very well known because he, mm -hmm. he sort of, um, I mean, I would say he sort of honestly embraced, you know, because he was sort of regarded as a young radical and was at least friendly with the like deconstruction people at the time and in the 70s. But he, uh, you know, he, he sort of, uh, embraced his position as this uh, stalwart of the establishment and, you know, this kind of, um, this kind of preserver of the canon and so on. So, you know, so for him, it was much more uh, uh, overt, but, but for most of them, they sort of tried to hold on to their radical chic 
while at the same time they were occupying all these endowed chairs and sort of had had basically completely uprooted and displaced the previous generation. And now, you know, I mean, in a simple sense, of course, these people aren't going to rock the boat by, you know, essentially putting themselves in. in I mean, what real, what real beef do they have with the establishment or, you know, the state as it's currently constituted? Like not, not very much. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's pretty rational that they're acquiescing to all this stuff because yeah, although it's, in it's my probably experience... like the world they've made. And these are, you know, the, the world is now being run and, you know, the media is being run and, and um, you know, civil society and, and state institutions are being run by generations of students that they taught, you know, so. Yeah, <laughs> although I definitely agree with all that. Um this is probably because I'm from a very academic family, both parents and, and also a sibling. We're all professors. It's, it's ridiculous. It's completely ridiculous. But, but anyways, that, that, that's, that's kind of the, that, that's the context for me. Um, and, 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 and we all kind of, we're not all literally in the humanities, like geography is not in the humanities, but we all probably think uh, and are, 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 are reasonably well-read with a lot of these uh, big texts. Anyways, what I want to, uh, what, what I'm getting at is in my experience, the baby boomer generation professors who, who whose experience totally maps onto what you just said. They were like overthrowing these older, fustier, kind of like British empire era traditions. Um, they were replacing it with something new, something usually with a kind of like radical or radical chic kind of patina around it. Um, and in my experience, and I'm not just talking about my parents, but I'm like other boomers too. Um, they are actually kind of pissed off and uncomfortable with what's happened because they still think like boomers. They still think like, well, wait a minute, now there are these structures in place and it kind of reminds us of the, it reminds us of the rigidity that we spent uh, all of the formative years of our lives rebelling against. And, and, and like in my experience, if you're gonna find an academic Marxist who's like actually saying, so like doing interesting Marxian political, econo uh, political economy analysis of the Canadian trucker protest, it's more likely to be a 70 year old Marxist than a 48 year old Marxist. I, my, I, you know, it, it's not good to just reduce things down to generations, but this is all kind of like the Gen X careerist academics fault more so than the boomers. I, I think actually yeah, I the boomers, yeah. it's not mm -hmm. just that I love my parents. It's probably a factor, but I, I think the boomers, I, I, I don't think they're, I think they were happy with the sort of state of play in the 1990s. I think that balance of things was just like totally perfect for like that. That was when academia perfectly reflected their sensibility where it's like, yeah, they were coming up with like deconstructive theories about like, you know, uh, why you should, uh, you, you know, why you should look skeptically at, 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 the, at Shakespeare or something like that. But there was always like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, like, oh, but we're, of course, we're all going to read Shakespeare. It's Shakespeare for crying out loud, of course, because they had all they had all grown up in that older system and it was part of them. And it was like part of their identity. Um, and there was always that wink, wink, nudge, nudge amongst each other, which is so typical of the boomers. And they didn't understand that they 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 only they failed to pass that forward to the Xers or the millennials, like all the subsequent generations got and more kind of institutionalized, careerified form was the part where you're just deconstructing everything and you're not replacing it with anything else. Um, and yeah, like, is it the boomer's fault? I suppose it's their fault, but I, I, it does seem to me that on the whole, it's kind of these older people that you can still kind of count on 
to actually articulate an interesting critique of, of some of the really bad dynamics going on right now. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I, I think uh, there is also, right, that there, I mean, I, I guess part of what I'd say is, um, you know, if you think, if you think of most of the boomers, at least the ones in my sort of general field is, they're, you know, obviously on one level, they're sort of being challenged by, especially the youngest generation and, and often kind of their own undergraduate students at this point, but you know, they, they don't seem to have much of a footing with which to respond to it. Um, and, and they, they seem very easily cowed. I mean, not just the boomers, but the, the, the younger generations too. I'd say, although I'd say the younger generations are, are more, um, you know, they're more willing to, or, or sorry, they're, they're more willing to actually directly get on board with all of the, the most kind of unhinged uh, stuff that's coming out of, I think the boomers could have population. I think the boomers are probably a bit more uncomfortable with it, but that they're, you know, they're also, you know, sitting there in their endowed chairs and, uh, you know, they're, they're awaiting their nice pensions and, uh, you know, this is probably like, uh, maybe this is too wild a theory. I, I think the boomer academics with their endowed chaired endowed chairs, which should give them power. Uh, and I don't think they like, um, the increasing kind of long fingers of prohibitions against free speech. I don't think they like any of that. I think it really viscerally contrasts against the way they came of age, like, you know, the Berkeley free, free speech movement and all that. Um, and I think they would be pushing back much more strongly. First of all, they're getting old. It's hard to push back really strongly when you're old. But I don't think it's just that. I think that probably some of them deserve to be me too but I don't think that's why the boomer academics started getting me too. I think they started getting me too to kind of like make sure it's not conspiratorial. It's just kind of like, this is a, maybe a functionalist account so that they, it kind of puts them on the defensive. Like it kind of attacks a particular uh, aspect of boomer culture where it was very kind of libertine and, 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 you know, I, I guess like, 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 like sex was in play for the boomers when they were younger in a way that I guess the current mores would consider like really bad, basically would consider immoral yeah. um, because of the way it was, it was in play um, during like the 1960s and the boomers maybe because maybe because they are getting older, probably feel embarrassed about this and they know just how uh, uh, just how consequential um, uh, some of this stuff can be now. And so that whole thing totally puts a lot of them, both, both men and women, by the way. Um, wasn't there a, a famous uh, lit theorist, Avital Rennell, where yes, something like right. this happened? I, this is I was years just ago. Gonna bring this but... up. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was yeah. not that long ago. It was, uh, I mean, and in some ways that was kind of, that was probably the most notable sort of revolt of the boomers against the current, the sort of new, you know, new- Failed revolt. Um, it was a failed revolt. New kind of sexual regime. Right, exactly. But they, um, you know, particularly in that the whole sort of a list of boomer sort of lit theory celebrities all signed this letter in support of her. Now, this happened again with this anthropologist, John Komaroff. But in this case, um, mm. they uh, a, a number of them, after having put their names on it, then retracted their signatures once it kind of started garnering a lot of mainstream attention. Whereas right. I think basically the the people who like Judith Butler and so on who had signed on in defense of 
of Avital Renel, you know, kept their signatures there. Um, and yeah, but she was still, I mean, she was, um, I believe she is back to teaching, but she was suspended for a year from her duties. Um, Renel Yes, exactly. Okay. And then, I mean, I suppose the other one, which is more overt is, um, you know, Laura Kipnis, who kind of actually has has waged a, an overt war against all of this, um, you know, and and was sort of, I mean, she wasn't exactly Me Too, but she was Title Nine, Right, yeah. I, as I, I a result of her defense of a colleague who had been Me too right? Um, so, you know, that that that's maybe the most the the clearest case of a sort of um boomer prof in my general kind of intellectual is, is laura kipnis a boomer prof who, uh that's a good question she i think she came kind of came of age in the 70s but let's figure out how old she is <laughs> um but if she, if so okay so she's 1956 so she's on the younger end of the boomers but she's okay a boomer. sure yeah 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 and, and look in a lot of these cases um you look at the details and some of them you're like oh yeah that guy deserved to get totally hammered like you know fuck that guy and some of them you're like oh this is crazy this is totally unfair um my point is that, like why did this big wave of um me too stuff happen against um really high status baby boomer generation professors when it did. I, I think it's partially because it kind of puts them on, on the defensive during the precise moment when they would actually probably be really useful if they were more on the offensive, like, you know, sticking up for, for uh, you know, just kind of like liberal principles of academic free speech, like this kind of stuff. And instead they're, they're, they, they've kind of been placed on, 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 the, uh, on the defensive by, by many of these cases. Even though, yeah, there's one or two of these cases where, you know, you you wouldn't want to defend the person being accused. Oh, yeah. um, it's <laughs> I mean, it's more about it's more about the timing. Like, okay, well, why not fifteen years ago? Like, yeah. why is it right now when um, academic free speech and just 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 feelings of academic security are under assault in so many other kinds of ways? It doesn't really seem like a coincidence. Yeah, and I think you know there. Are... I, I suppose a, a sort of overall lesson we might derive from this is that, you know, what we've learned in the last couple of years is that, and and this again, I think is, is where I, um, where I think most of the sort of conservative critiques of academia are, have been wrong since the nineties, which is that, you know, these people are not, I mean, essentially they're careerists um, who have done well in this difficult to navigate institutional setting. And they're largely about, you know, their, their fundamental aim is to, you know, protect and ideally, but usually it hasn't been possible recently sort of expand their own um, position within that or enhance their own position within that setting. Um, and so, you know, much of their sort of radicalism has to be understood within the sort of intra-institutional um, struggles that they've engaged in at certain, at, at different points in their careers. And, yeah. and that, you know, that, that on the other hand, I don't think this does, I don't think these ideas do nothing. I talked to Blake Smith about this also, right. I think, you know, that, that, that the, you know, there's, I think there is a sort of exaggeration of what the actual effect of, you know, elite academic 
theories is on the culture at large or, or what the actual means by which those theories are disseminated is like, I think it's, it's probably not primarily the, or it's, it's not primarily the classroom, but um, you know, it, it does uh, I mean, it, it does relate to this sort of larger question of like the formation of elites and the sort of ideological um, you know, premises that are guiding the sort of current and rising elites. And so to that extent, I think they have, you know, they have had a sort of effect on the society, but, you know, in, in some regards, I, you know, we might think about how this has been a kind of stabilizing effect, um, given the larger kind of sociopolitical and economic circumstances of the past several decades, like the, mm. the way that they've, they've helped consolidate a new kind of ideology that, um, you know, seems to fit quite comfortably with the the functioning of capital in its current um, form. But but now, but now that ideology doesn't really <clears throat> like in 1995. If you were to say, is there a particular location of the ideology? You might have said the academic seminar room. But now you might say that the location of the ideology is like the New York Times, oh, yeah. uh, you know, editorial boardroom or something like that. Uh, and so this puts academics in a kind of weird position. And, and I do think that, you know, again, going back to my point about the boomer profs and them maybe being uncomfortable with what's going on, if some of them don't like, they're saying, well, wait a minute, this is actually a misuse of the theory I came up with back in like 1996. Um, I don't like the way that the, the, the New York Times is amplifying this. Like, I actually want to say something about how this is completely wrong and we should go in this completely different direction. Maybe we should even form a coalition with some of these unsavory characters over here. Um, they're kind of too much on the defensive um, because of a lot of things going on. It's certainly not just, uh, you know, these, these accusations about sexual assault. Um, they're kind of too much on the defensive to really play a major role in that. And what you said before about um, how conservative critics of the Academy have gotten some of these things wrong. Like I, I remember when, when the, the Harper letter defending, like, like the Harper letter against cancel culture or whatever back in 2020. And um and there were some people who signed it who were like centrist and some people who were center right and some people who were center left. Um, and Noam Chomsky's name was there. Um, and I remember some conservative commentators sort of pitched this as, look, even Noam Chomsky is there. And I was thinking like, no, like that's a misunderstanding. Like it's not even Noam Chomsky is there. It's that of all the people on the list, he's actually the one who's like most almost fanatically um, devoted his career to principles of free speech. Like, didn't he like write a forward to a Holocaust denial book or something like that, which in his defense, he didn't quite understand that's what it was. But like, that's how, that's how like out, not, not that he's a Holocaust denier, right? That, that's not the point here. Um, he was sort of saying something like they have a right to be saying something, they have a right to be questioning the narrative, something along those lines. And this is way back in the 1980s that this happened. Um, but anyways, he, he's like devoted his, his career to those principles to a really extreme degree. And the idea that that would be the case for someone like Noam Chomsky um, doesn't really seem to register, like, like that shouldn't register as surprising for conservatives. Uh, and yet it does, which is indicative of what you said, which is that they're sort of getting the nature of the beast somewhat wrong. Yeah, I mean, um... I think Chomsky is at least one of these figures you've seen, although, you know, he's, he, he, he it's been kind of a mixed bag, but, you know, you, you've seen kind of continue to hold the line of, of this older sensibility. I mean, I think on the other hand, you, you have seen these kind of older 
professors um, recently kind of trying to swoop in and provide a kind of legitimation of the, you know, more restrictive um, speech regime that seemed that, you know, is, has been implemented. Um, there was a professor at NYU who interestingly was tied up in the whole Avital Rennell um, case named Ulrich Bayer, who hmm. was, I believe at the time, uh, a dean. Um, and he basically, and is also in the same department as Rennell. So that, that's all, that's a side story here. But I remember he wrote, uh, um, and he is, you know, an endowed chair. I think he's younger, perhaps more Gen X than Boomer. But, um, you know, he wrote a piece in the Times a few years ago that was sort of using like Jean-Francois Lyotard and a few other people to kind of argue why, in fact, you know, um, or, you know, words can be violence and uh, things like that. And then, you know, more recently, you have this um, pretty prominent Penn State professor of literature, um, Michael Berube, who oh, yeah, seems sure. to have a new book that's basically a sort of um, uh, um, justification of, or, or I mean, it, it seems to be a, a reconsideration of academic freedom. And as far as I can tell, the marquee proposal is to create a sort of academic freedom committee at every university that will sort of decide whether a professor's, you know, controversial speech, you know, did in fact fall under the rubric of academic freedom and to, you know, limit the the scope of what would count as 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 sort of qualifying as protected speech under that rubric. So you do seem to have some of these people kind of swooping in and trying to it's provide a more because... provide a more sophisticated framework for um, you know f for the the kinds of things that are more or less spontaneously emerging out of sort of activist uh, actions and so on. It's extraordinary because academics mostly, despite having tenure, like what we or even when they do have tenure, mostly don't say anything interesting. They mostly don't say anything like, like that anyone would have any reason to pay enough attention to to actually get upset about it and want to shut down what they're saying. Um, so it, it, if there if there's now beginning to be kind of institutional gestures towards just having rules about it anyway, I mean, that, that's just it's just it's just kind of uh, remarkable. I mean, before a year or two ago, I would have said the real problem is not so much um, a kind of like uh, like the dynamic that's suppressing freedom of speech and freedom of inquiry and freedom of thought on the campus is not really about rule structures. It's more like stuff going on in people's minds, stuff going on socially, like m like more subtle stuff, stuff that's like harder to figure out what to do about it. Once they turn it all into a rule system, that, that's actually relatively easy to oppose. You just point to the rule system and say, well, these are really horrible, oppressive rules. Um, yeah, Michael Barabay, was, did, didn't he, it wasn't his endowed chair, the, uh, the Joe Paterno chair at Penn State. Maybe they've changed the name of the chair by now. That's a good question. I um, I should look into that. Um, I I don't remember that point, but uh, that that seems seems plausible. Um, but yeah, so he uh, he's sort of a 
I, again, I, I think what's kind of interesting is just to see, I mean, it is really kind of a rear guard action on the part of some of these people, right? That, you know, the, they're, they've kind of, um, you know, the cat is out of the bag and they're not really in control of any of these. And this is like another thing, um, you know, I, I, I think they're, uh, they're largely kind of retconning some kind of theoretical frameworks in order to kind of remain on the good side of the sort of rising generation, which, you know, is epistemological, I mean, is, um, is uh, <laughs> professionally strategic and makes sense, although I'm not saying that they're cynical. But, you know, I think um, just to maybe sum up this part of the discussion, because I wanted to kind of get back to some points about mobility, but, um, you know, the, <laughs> the larger point here is that, you know, academia, I would say is and always has been a small C conservative institution. And so hmm. it's basically full of people who are, um, you know, careerists and time servers and who are happy to uh, provide rationales for whatever the sort of current thing is. And that's not, not new or particularly different. Um, and the only ironic thing is that, you know, certain of these ideas would, and, and this is more the part that interests me, like, there are very precise and specific ways that you can point to certain of these ideas that had a certain currency not that long ago and show that it's, it's really hard to see how you, um, how you can consistently, um, you know, still claim some kind of fealty to this sort of thinking. And at the same time, come down on the side of, of certain types of <clears throat> um, policies that have been put in place and, uh, certain kinds of cultural trends that are underway. So, you know, that's kind of been my, my interest, but, I, but I'm also not, you know, I, 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 I sort of dislike accusing people of hypocrisy for various reasons. Like I, I kind of, I just, I, I find that one of the most kind of annoying sorts of arguments. So instead I, I've just been trying to think about what does it mean that, you know, the, these whole sort of bodies of, of thought that, you know, were seemingly formative when I was kind of coming up through academia have, have just, you know, been systematically ignored in relation to things that are obviously highly, yeah. highly relevant to them. I got to say, when I, when I was younger, I thought Foucault was a joke, like that whole way of, of, of like looking at the world, everything's about surveillance and discourse. And I just thought it was all crap. I was like more into Marxist, uh, you know, political economy, like who's going to build the factories and work in them. This is what I was really attracted to when I was like 23 years old. Um, and now it's like, whoa, like the world has turned out like the world is, ha, ha, has has worked out in a very, uh, at least so far in the 2020s, has worked out in a very Foucauldian direction. And yet all of these like endowed Foucauldians from from back when I was younger um, seem to be awfully quiet about it. Um, yeah, it, it is true that the hypocrisy gotcha game is not that interesting. It's just interesting when you find someone who's actually being consistent and going against the, the hypocrisy, I guess, is the norm. And well, Agam Ben, who you've mentioned, um, he was a, a, a big skeptic of the idea of having onerous um, onerous uh, COVID regulations, I guess in Italy, he's Italian, I, I think. Um, and that was very consistent with the theories that he had spent like his whole career developing, whereas many, I guess, of his like uh, uh, sort of co-generational colleagues within the continental theory scene uh, sort of condemned him uh, when he was saying those things. So he was the one being consistent and they were the ones uh, who were sort of saying, no, we kind of have to go with the kind of new 
the new sort of current of events. And I, I thought that was very striking in terms of how it reflected on Agamben more so than, than the other than the other people who are condemning him. Yeah, and then I mean, I suppose, you know, it, it would also be interesting to think about kind of where the Marxists are with all of this, because, you know, at least some of my friends who are more who are more Marxist than I am, um, you know, do do feel that there's been a kind of similar um, a, a similar betrayal or at least um, refusal to apply the usual kind of intellectual framework that they claim to operate from to the events of the past couple of years. Um, you know, and that I think, I, I don't know, you know, I, I mean, I have various thoughts on this, but um, the, the basic, uh, the basic point I would make is just, it's, it's been very weird to see this idea take hold that somehow being like somehow supporting lockdowns was a way of being anti-capitalist like that at least this oh, is yeah. i don't know about mm-hmm. i mean i i think i've seen some sort of academic marxists um you know uh, at least tacitly support this kind of idea but it's certainly like among the i suppose sort of dirtbag left and sort of you know pop marxists of youtube and twitter you know this is on the sort of bread tube kind of people i mean this is like orthodoxy right that like well, if you don't want the economy to be locked down, that means you just want to support capitalism. And so the the true anti-capitalist action would be to just, you know, shut down the economy until we have zero COVID. I mean, this right. is, You're talking this about is people orthodoxy. Like, people like the, what's that? Like, like Vosh. You're talking about people like Vosh. Like, yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah. Like he personifies but, what you mean. Okay, yeah. But some it. of the sort of, you know, some of the people affiliated with like, Jacobin and other types of, yep. you know, sort of pop Marxist magazines and so on will will repeat this line, right? That that basically, um, you know, the the struggle the struggle against capitalism has now become the struggle to preserve life um, from these these sort of callous uh, billionaires who just want everyone to die. Um, which is bizarre, like a bizarre idea because, I mean, that's actually what- I think, I think I know I know how this happened. I know what the kind of intellectual softening up process was like before COVID and the way, it actually has to do with environmentalism, which is, I guess, something we, we wanted to try yeah, to get absolutely. around to. But like, so, so Marxists wanted to be relevant to um, environmentalism in general and sort of like climate change stuff. And it's like the desire to be relevant to that st- started around when I was in grad school. And so there was this desire to kind of fixate upon certain things that Marx says about like capitalism as like uh, as like a metabolism, just anything you can seize upon like that, um, where, you know, once you start to kind of repostulate the ideas in that way, you sort of tend to lose conceptual touch with like actual working people and things become more about these abstractions like life. Um, and, and that kind of intellectual softening up was happening over the course of a decade or two. And so it wasn't, it's not really that surprising to me that like along comes COVID and it turns out that like the number one priority to help the workers uh, turns out to be just like this sort of like bland idea, this sort of bland abstraction of like preserving a life. And what does it mean to preserve life? Well, whatever Anthony Fauci says, presumably is what we just need to do. Um, so you just wind up with this. Yeah. You mentioned Jacobin, like why does Jacobin exist at this point? They agree with Trudeau about how bad the truckers were. Um, 
I think Jacobin had some podcasts where they referred to the truckers as fascists or something like that. And they basically had nothing else to say about what happened. Um, they, in terms of public health, I, I probably Jacobin still feels like they need to go through the motions of criticizing the fact that, uh, you know, that, that the Democrats uh, are still supporting the idea of, of private health insurance and stuff like that. But on the whole, there's not a lot of like, what's the difference between Jacobin and like Elizabeth Warren when it comes to some sort of idea of what 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 healthcare should look like. Um, so when I look at something like Jacobin, I, I'm increasingly thinking, what is the point of this particular magazine existing if not to kind of bring a certain flavor of youthful radical into the fold of what a particular kind of liberal establishment already wants anyway, which is like, yeah, you should listen to Anthony Fauci when Fauci says that there should be lockdowns based on a sort of questionable interpretation of a data set whose formation was itself probably somewhat questionable because you know, the way in which data sets are put together is itself very kind of fraught when it comes to things like this. You should just kind of automatically listen. And if you don't listen, it means you're some sort of anti, you're just the same as capitalism because you're anti things being alive. Or it was this kind of formulation. Okay. Um, yeah, so I think, I think part of that intellectual softening up kind of happened through the way in which a lot of um, Marxist intellectuals, maybe more of like the millennial generation, chose to kind of absorb certain ideas about the environment, which is like to really fixate upon this abstraction of climate change, which kind of leads you to other abstractions like life, rather than looking at this more kind of traditional form of environmentalism, where you're looking at like, you really care about this particular species of animal or like this particular patch of forest that like your family has had some connection to for four generations and you don't want bulldozers to come along and replace it with a shopping mall. Like there was a kind of movement away from that kind of older flavor of environmentalism towards something more abstract, which I think also that abstraction wound up kind of watering down um, more kind of rigorous Marxist abstractions pertaining to labor and capital, which would have been a useful way to look at the Canadian trucker protest, but for the most part was not really used as, as a way of looking at that at all. Right. And this, um, you know, th- this point about life is interesting. So I've been, I'm writing something about Ivan Illich. I don't know how familiar you are with him, but he, yeah, um, it's just, it's just a name I've heard. Yeah. So, 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 so I mean, he might, right. he may be, might be of interest in relation to some of what you write about, but he, um, you know, he had this one remark that was about um, seeing these two images, one of which was, a, you know, a sort of sonogram image of a fetus, and then the other of which was uh, the, a sort of like the blue disc of like Earth seen from space. And so back, this is like back in the 80s that he sort of framed these as like two. So he had this whole kind of idea that, you know, even thinking back then that there was this kind of increasing idolization of life, right, which was not, I mean, he, he at that point wasn't in dialogue with someone like a Gombin, but it's extremely similar to this notion of sort of bare life, right? That, um, and so the fetus is basically the right wing version of that, right? Where hmm. basically, you know, life becomes associated with this one particular thing, which is, is a, you know, is in, imbued with this kind of um, false concreteness, right? Because in fact, it's this, in a sense, this kind of production of, of a sort of scientific way of seeing, right? But never, but but nevertheless, it's sort of ideologically construed as, as sort of fundamental and irreducible, right? And then on the left, he argues at the same time you see this happening with things like environmentalism, right? Um, where 
you have again this kind of abstraction of life standing in for you know sort of more the kinds of more concrete positive goods that um that you were yeah and, and maybe to kind of like i mean it wouldn't have made sense to, to illich in the 80s but but maybe to kind of update it in a way so that that idea would resonate for for listeners now it, it's not so much life or the left it's this idea of climate right that's the grand abstraction that the kind of generally left-wing environmental movement has fixated on in a way that even 10 years ago, uh, I don't think was as much the case. It's just, it's, it's, it's climate, climate, climate now. Um, and there's, I'm not even sure at this point that the abstraction of climate is actually at least pegged to something like, um, like life. Like, 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 what if I could, what if I could show, I can't actually do this. I don't have the training or, or, uh, or, or the, uh, I, I don't have this training or the knowledge, but what if I could show hypothetically that if the temperature of the world goes up, the, um, actually the number of organisms will also go up. It's plausible, right? It'd be nice and nice and warm. It seems like more things are alive in the rainforest than in Antarctica, right? So if the planet were a little warmer, maybe more things would be alive. Maybe it would maximize how much life there is. I don't think there's anything going on in the kind of like Green New Deal left, uh, right? The Green New Deal kind of environmental left that is in any way, shape, or form prepared to like explore that kind of question. Um, not that I'm advocating making the planet warmer to so that there's more like you know. My, uh, you know, uh, like jellyfish and microorganisms, in, in the oceans yeah. or microorganisms yeah. or, or whatever. But I, I think it like, like, like there, the, the way in which the abstractions are supposed to fit together in the kind of grand theoretical scheme, I think all of that is out the window at this point. And at this point, it's just about doing sort of X, Y, and Z, which suppose like, like, you know, building windmills and solar panels, which is supposedly going to cause the climate to not change, which I just think is a really kind of weak, depressing form of caring about the environment, if you compare it to like the creation of the national park system a hundred years ago, or, um, you know, people who like gave their lives in order to like protect, uh, you know, mountain gorillas in West Africa, things like that. Um, also the, the mode of, of sort of, um, the mode by which it's emotionally apprehended. I mean, and this is sort of where I would see the similarity to COVID, is is abstracted into i mean and this is something i'm also trying to write about but it's sort of abstracted into charts and graphs right so on one hand the the sort of affective dimension of it is this kind of panic right where you you look at some number going up on a chart right and the 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 correct more you know emotional response which is sort of morally mandated is to kind of panic right and think that the only response to this is this kind of this kind of um, paralysis, right? Where you, I mean, and the, that the paralysis is on one hand is literal because it, it sort of seems to lead nowhere very meaningful politically, but it's also then reflected in the desired policy is like lockdown, right? Where the thing that you're supposed to do is just kind of stop everything, shut everything down, right? Um, and so, and that was kind of the, if I mean, as, as I understand it, those, um, the those big uh, pro the extinction rebellion protests and so on mm -hmm. right it's it's again this kind of notion of like we have to shut everything down we have to stop everything bring everything to a stop right and so it seems like on one hand you have this um this emotional again kind of 
level of apprehension of it, which is, you know, the, the sort of um, paradigmatic form of which is to look at a chart, right, where there's a number going up. It's a number of COVID cases, it's a number of hospitalizations, or it's temperature, right? It's, um, you know, global temperature or, you know, temperature in Antarctica last week or whatever, right? Um, and so it, it seems to me, I haven't fully articulated this point, but it, it seems to me there's kind of a, a relation between, you know, that, that particular kind of um, relation to the world, right? That's, that's embodied in that, that kind of, you know, panicked gazing at charts. And then um, this particular mode of action, which on one hand takes the form of this kind of paradoxical, like we have to stay, I mean, can take the form of this, like the, the action you have to take is to do nothing is to stay at home. Right. And to, so just kind of enclose yourself in a bubble or, but, or it takes the, the form of this kind of um, extinction rebellion kind of, um, you know, flash mob <clears throat> kind of yeah, general, although, general extinction... urban, general urban destruction, which the demand of which is shut everything down. Yeah. I mean, they do, their tactic is, is not to just stay in their Extinction Rebellion's tactic right. is no, not exactly, for the, yeah. the activists to stay no, inside, I, I but was, they're asking people yeah. to be less mobile, right? I exactly. Mean, that, that, yeah. That's, that's, that's the kind of the big ask. Yeah. It's interesting what you're saying. I hadn't thought about it before that you can kind of link, uh, COVID and climate change in terms of this fixation on like the graph and like watching the graph line goes up, going up versus um, like uh, the viralized image, whether it's like planes hitting the twin towers or whether it's like a particularly appalling uh, death of like a black man in custody um, where, where, where like the viralized image, like the image event is really what's sort of galvanizing uh, the sense of uh, of like extreme uh, moral outrage, bo- uh, uh, tumbling into to fanaticism, and yeah, it does sort of seem. I see what you're saying. Like those are those are like two. I think we usually think of those things as linked, but maybe it's actually useful to kind of think of those as being sort of different categories of event because the the the, the dynamic when when you're fixated on this like graph line abstraction seems to be does seem to be rather different. Yeah, and it's it's this again. It relates to this question of like concreteness, right? And this kind of misplaced concreteness, uh, you know, where this thing that is fundamentally kind of elusive and and sort of largely exists as an abstraction and so on, but but can be sort of experienced as something completely concrete, um, and and at least emotionally kind of experienced as something completely concrete. There, you know, there, there's something like that in both of these, right? They both concern this crisis that is sort of everywhere but invisible. Like you can't, you can't pin it down to anything concretely. But, um, or if you do, it's like there's already a surfeit of examples. So it. Well, so with the th- climate so movement, they, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. With the climate yeah. movement, it's like, you know, heaven forbid they should actually look at a map of where carbon emissions are happening and like get a sense of like like it's so abstract for them that like, like the world isn't even there. It doesn't have like a geography to it, so to speak. Um, Cause then they would find, yeah, a lot of the carbon emissions are happening in Western Europe and Central Europe and, and, and in North America and also in East Asia. Um, and, and there's nothing in any of their tactics or theory of what they're about or what their goals are that in any way is sort of trying to gauge, okay, what are the geopolitics of what we're doing? Like, okay, we're shutting down this subway in London I mean, subway systems are really 
on the whole pretty good for the environment, I thought. Um, but there's it's, there's nothing they're doing that's like there, there was a book that came out last year called How to uh, Blow Up a Pipeline by a Swedish uh, geographer named Andreas Mom. Well, there's nothing in there about blowing up Chinese pipelines. Um, in fact, there's nothing in there about blowing up Iraqi pipelines, which is something that the uh, United States did during the Iraq war. We intentionally blew up their pipelines. The irony, I, I would guess, is probably lost on uh, Andreas Mom that he's like advocating doing the very thing that the uh, the, uh, the the coalition of the willing or whatever Bush Bush called it uh, was actually doing uh, in Iraq, which we, we were bombing pipelines. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of people uh, who would like to bomb certain uh, pipelines in uh, like central Eurasia now too, but there's like a geopolitics to that. Um, but all of that is completely absent from the way in which uh, uh, the climate movement right now is currently considered the wet thing uh, approaches everything, which is in terms of this, ju it's just the abstraction of the climate and the idea of like, you should feel ashamed that this is happening. And we need like to talk about more windmills, never nuclear power for some reason, but more windmills in like the Baltic Sea will somehow or other cause the climate to not change. And this is sort of the, this is like where we are right now. Um, it wasn't quite where we were five years ago, maybe in five more years, things will get a little better, or maybe worse. I, I don't know. So, I mean, I have some thoughts about this that I'm I'm curious what you think, because so I, as I said, I've been um, reading quite a bit by and and reading this long biography of um, Ivan Illich, who was this. I, I, I try not to go into him too much, but, you know, he's somebody I've always kind of admired as a extremely idiosyncratic kind of outside, you know, um, intellectual outsider. Wait, is there a book by him that, that I can get started with? What, what, do, you um, what do you recommend? <laughs> So I think I would recommend starting with his first book or actually it's actually his second book, which is his critique of education called de-schooling society. Okay. Um, and so there he outlines this argument that I, you know, despite having spent much of my life in education and being, you know, the child of teachers and so on, find, uh, you know, still find very compelling, right. Which is essentially that, um, the the function of school is is not to impart learning but to monopolize it on the part of this professional institution that then essentially um demotes the actual values of learning in favor of you know what other people later came to call credentialism right that that basically you know the, the real function of school is to produce graduates it's, it's not to produce people who know stuff or, or learned people, right? And that the, um, the, the argument, I'll try to get it to what, where it relates to our previous discussion, right? So, so his argument is essentially that, um, you know, learning and knowledge are goods that exist in abundance and are part of the commons, right? And so everybody possesses knowledge, everybody is capable of acquiring knowledge, um, this is simply an attribute of being human, right? And the the means by which we can acquire it are varied, right? Sometimes they're more individualized, sometimes they're social, but you know, the learning is, you know, conceivable in in all sorts of different contexts, right? So what school does is establish what he calls a radical monopoly over learning, where any other form of learning is regarded as illegitimate. And, um, you know, everyone who, um, everybody who wants to know something is 
basically conditioned to believe that the way to do that is to pass through a series of sort of what he regards as sort of arbitrary rituals, right. That, um, that supposedly equates to, right. And, and are sort of equivalent to, um, this learning, right. But often, you know, essentially demote the actual learning in favor of, you know, things like being able to succeed within the, according to the standards of the system you're operating in. Right. So what it does is it takes an abundant good, right. Which is held in common and turns it into a scarce good that is, held um that is monopolized by this particular institution right Mm. and so this is kind of his model of what and he has a kind of larger theory of so he was a a catholic priest who was ultimately kind of investigated and um and sort of um forced to relinquish his active duties as a priest by the successor to the inquisition um so you know he he had sort of a lot of background with the institution of the church and so he basically sees um modern institutions as successors to the church which similarly you know takes this good i mean he's a christian right so he says takes this good which sort of christ imparts to the world and then says you know only by passing through us i.e the church can you obtain this thing right whereas as, as he argues, the way it's originally kind of given is, is just openly and freely to all of humanity, right, in the Gospels. So that's kind of his argument. So basically, the church kind of is the, the original sort of institute, you know, sort of proto-modern institution, because it, does, it performs this move of kind of taking a good and monopolizing its distribution and, t- you know, turning it from something that's abundant into something that's scarce. Hmm. So in any case, um, <clears throat> the thing I've been thinking about is, so I, I find there's a lot that's kind of admirable and interesting in this line of argument. And he applies it to various other institutions and fields and notably medicine, right? Which is, I mean, the reason I kind of wanted to revisit him was because of his, his writing about medicine in relation to the pandemic. But he also actually writes about transportation, um, transportation infrastructure kind of in the context mm. of, cause he's living in Latin America and uh, Puerto Rico, Mexico, and he's kind of observing critically the development projects that are happening in the sixties and seventies there. Um, and so he, he kind of, you know, and this is where it might intersect with your work because he's kind of interested in the way that, you know, um, you know, building roads, as, as sort of part of a development and modernization project is sort of not a neutral act, right? Because it's sort of similarly, um, it, it doesn't simply introduce one other element to the transportation system. Instead, it tends to, um, it tends to force other modes of transportation out of existence. Right? Yeah. Well, like get it, getting around on muleback, which yeah. would get, would have given peasant communities a way to get back and forth across a mountain range that the, uh, that the road system does can't even go to because it's too hard to engineer. Yeah, that 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 aspect certainly resonates for me. Uh, absolutely. So so and he's similarly he's sort of arguing that you know basically you have the state bureaucracy which is taking control over this thing that was essentially something that communities could autonomously um, exert some kind of power over, right? How to get from point A to point B, and instead it becomes this this issue for state employed engineers to figure out, right? And then what they do is, I mean, and the most dramatic examples of this are like, if you think of like, 
I mean, uh, Brasilia, for example, is, you know, this kind of, mm. um, in, in that period is like this sort of, uh, <clears throat> new paradigm of the the city that's built kind of in the heart of Latin America to, to sort of um, provide a model for this sort of, you know, car focused development. Right. And so obviously that's, that's very significant, right. And what it, and what it does and, and, and that it, it sort of disables, um, you know, it, it, it renders people dependent on this larger infrastructure, which is provided by the state. And of course this could tie in with, you know, James C. Scott, who you mentioned as well. And the, the sort mm, sure. of, the friction between the state and these kind of previously autonomous sort of agrarian communities and so on. Right. Um, but, you know, the thing that I'm more critical, so I think, you know, Illich has a lot of interesting ideas that remain relevant, but I do also think he, he exerts a kind of influence in, in various odd realms, including in relation to the school argument, um, the sort of unschooling movement and so on. Um, but he also, uh, you know, I think is pretty influential on and is sort of trying to be influential on environmentalism in the, like in the seventies. And, you know, he, he sort of argues for, you know, a perhaps unfortunately termed notion of subsistence, right. That, 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 you know, he, he, he fights against these kind of development projects, for example, because he thinks they constitute a war on subsistence, right. A, a war on the ability of these communities to um, kind of sustain themselves outside of some kind of relationship of dependency to the state. Right. Um, you know, which also becomes a situation where they're, they're sort of being taxed and all that kind of stuff. So he's, you know, he, he's sort of trying to argue for the continued autonomy of these more rural places in these countries where he's living. But then more broadly, he's kind of arguing for a return to some kind of notion of limits, right? That um, we, we need to, on one hand, reject the notion of scarcity um, by kind of, you know, returning to a sort of ethos of the commons. But on the other hand, we have to um, accept some kind of notion that, you know, w when, when you accept a premise like development, you know, that assumes a notion of kind of infinite growth, right? And so he, he argues for this notion of limits, right? Um, but, you know, what's interesting to me is that at the same time, his, you know, and so he, he in a sense, becomes a kind of... Um, influential figure on sort of people who support things like degrowth. Right. And so, you know, to me, I have certain like <laughs> hostility towards those kinds of arguments, particularly coming from these kind of affluent Western right. leftists De and environmentalists. for everyone else. Yeah. Right. right. And, and but, so, you know, I, I think he has a lot of, where, yeah. Yeah. yeah so I think on. he has a lot of um, interesting critiques, as I said, but, it does seem like if you look at the 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 place where you have this environmental movement today, which will sort of pay lip service to things like degrowth, right? But at the same time is totally unwilling to, and I guess the interesting thing in his time was that he could really see it as basically the West imposing these development and modernization projects on the rest of the world, right? Whereas now it's it's not nearly that simple because of course the sort of developmentalist the the most kind of notable developmentalist projects have been undertaken by you know china and india and and other 
countries, um, you know, which they've kind of tried to undertake on their own terms, right? And so I just, you know, I, I, I really think, I mean, a lot of these degrowth ideas, I, you know, I haven't sort of contended with them at length, but I'm sort of trying to in, in relation to writing about Illich, just seem to me kind of part and parcel of this kind of dangerously, I don't, I don't know whether it's sort of willfully blind or sort of dangerously denialist kind of ideology that, you know, as you say, for example, simply has nothing to say about something like China, right? It just, right. It, it can't, it can't really seem to think it at all. What you're, what you're saying about Illich, I mean, I will definitely have to, have to, um, have to dive into this thinker. It, it sounds really interesting and like a, a lot there would probably be, be very meaningfully, uh, be, be very meaningful for me. Some of the stuff you said, I mean, we can touch upon like the research that I've done over the last decade, which is about these communities in rural Burma or Myanmar uh, and rural Northeast India that use elephants as a means of transportation, like from village to village. And um, the reason they use elephants besides elephants just being awesome and you look awesome when you're riding one and all that. But, but the real reason is that um, when the monsoon season comes, the road system becomes, unless it's like a really, really fancy, like concrete viaduct road, the road system becomes unusable because there's too much mud and flood water. Whereas the elephants, these are Asian elephants are basically evolved to tromp their way through the, that, that kind of terrain. Um, and that's the reason why people in those regions are using elephants. <clears throat> Oftentimes the, the actual person whose job it is to like train and ride and drive and kind of be with the elephant all the time called the mahout is oftentimes like, at least in a formal sense, a totally uneducated person. Um, and yet in, in, in many cases, like if you look at the actual situations and you like talk to people and you, you sort of look at the, 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 the demographic um, trend lines for the local Asian elephant population in these regions, these are the people who probably know more than any other human beings on the planet about how do you keep an elephant alive for a long time and reproducing at a healthy rate if it's in a situation where it's like under human control because zoos haven't figured that out. An elephant in a zoo is going to die at the age of 30. It's not going to have very many calves and elephants in the wild do well, but we don't have enough forest cover on a heavily human populated planet for uh, at least for Asian elephants, African elephants can kind of, for the time being, still make do in Africa, which is a less densely populated area than where, where Asian elephants are hanging out, which is like between India and China, essentially. Anyway, um, this is just getting back to uh, your point about schooling. Like, how does our current schooling system teach about ways to think about these issues? Well, they would maybe teach that uh, for a Western academic to be fixated on Burmese, Burmese elephants is a it smacks of a little bit of colonialism. I should probably stop doing it. That might be one thing that gets said. Um, it would talk a lot about the climate. And it would talk forever about the climate. Never mention, never mention like large animals. Um, it would be, it would be maybe critical of the idea of charismatic megafauna. It would deconstruct the charismatic megafauna. Like maybe I should stop paying attention to them. I should pay attention to something more abstract. Um, this is kind of what would what what would happen. I think through the kind of schooling process. At the end of which you get a credential, which then which then gives you permission to kind of sound important in the public square when talking about environmental issues. And in the meantime, it's these like totally uneducated people in like Kachin State in northern Burma who, um, in my experience, have like incredible knowledge about how you can actually 
live alongside a work elephant and get it to mate with like other elephants and live to the age of like 65. The, 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 the trick is you let the elephant wander the forest at night and you get it into the habit of being fetched each morning, which because they're elephants and they're smart and they're very eusocial. Uh, the good ones who are, are like sort of, you know, they're sort of wired the right way mentally. We'll just let you do it. And it's it, it sort of, it seems like a very kind of, uh, it seems like the kind of example that kind of drives home uh, much of what you're saying about uh, what uh, Illich is saying about um, the failures of kind of institutionalized education and how it's taking this stuff, which actually had been located more in the realm of like, maybe you could call it a commons or common knowledge or peasant knowledge or something. And it makes it this, um, both like scarcer thing, but also less useful thing. Like it seems to me like the scarcer it gets, the more abstract it gets and then the less usable. Um, that sort of seems to be the pattern. Yeah. And I mean, I love this example because it's so, I mean, it's it's so congruent with a lot of his thinking, right? That, I mean, and this would be an example of what he, exactly what he was talking about in terms of what these development projects were simply not taking into account, right? That they, they were essentially showing up in these places and assuming that they, the sort of experts and, you know, professionals who were in their employ, you know, sort of knew better than the people in these places, sort of how to best live in those environments. And therefore they, you know, impose these kinds of more or less one size fits all projects that, um, that, you know, often have the effect of, you know, not, not just, uh, uh, I mean, of, of actually kind of worsening, um, I mean, so like, I guess uh, a, a classic example of this was that scandal about um, like powdered uh, milk for, um, you know, for babies in uh, in Africa, I think in the 70s or 80s, that basically, mm. you know, that there was this kind of mass distribution and this kind of attempt to um, persuade women not to breastfeed. And then basically the result was that all these babies died because the water was unclean. So... You know, it's kind of this, yeah, this like, I, you know, I, the, 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 I mean, that was maybe one of the more absurd examples of this kind of thing that, that was happening at that time. But it does. I mean, on the whole, I don't know where you, you know, stand with this. Uh, like, are you are you pro growth or anti growth? I think I'm pro growth. I just I'm anti yeah. that kind of growth. You know, it's not a very interesting right. position, I suppose. Um, It should be good. Like a lot of the interesting th- theories and. Like, like I'm sort of more familiar with Scott. You're, I think, probably more familiar with maybe like a lot of like continental theorists as well as um, uh, Illich sort of thing like this, where it's like very critical of, of like modernism, modern developmentalism. Um, and so those kinds of figures have produced all sorts of interesting examples and cases and ways of thinking about all of the things that kind of like early, early stage modernism was getting wrong. But to me, it's like, okay, but we can't be anti-growth because that's like condemning billions of people to starvation. And anyway, if you, once those criticisms get made, like to look at the example of say nuclear power, like reactors are a lot better designed now than they were in the age of like uh, Three Mile Island and, 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 and Chernobyl, right? Um, so just because those things happened, I think most of the environmental movement is sort of still wired like, well, those things happen, therefore there shouldn't be nuclear power. But um, reactor design, like you take like the, the, the latest reactor design, like developed in France or something, it's probably like really, really good. And it would be tougher. It would be tougher, I think, to do a kind of um, 
to do one of these like anti-developmentalist critiques of the latest nuclear reactor core design that was built in like, you know, rural France, like last year or something like that. Um, so there needs to be kind of like a bit of a back and forth where like these critiques get made and then therefore the kind of um, the equipment for growth hopefully improves now having like maybe absorbed um, some of these uh, like valuable ideas that that were that had been associated with some kind of commons. I mean, some some of these things work better when located in the commons, like maybe these these elephants I'm interested in work better when they're sort of associated with a kind of peasant commons and not with some sort of institutional environment, maybe. Other things probably work better associated with the state, like a nuclear reactor, um, which, which I don't think we should get rid of uh, if it's well-designed. So yeah, I mean, I don't well, know, where I, do you stand yeah. on the growth thing? Uh, I, I Pretty similar to what you just outlined, I think. Um, I mean, I have a sort of larger theory I'm trying to develop that, that relates to this Illich project, but that I, I maybe I'll sort of test out here because it, it's sort of an answer to this question. Um, so I think part of the problem with, you know, I mean, someone like Illich, but but also these kind of critics of, of modernizing projects, um, you know, including Scott, who I guess was like a CIA working for the CIA at some point, right? In yeah, his that, early get, that gets. I mean, said, I think, yeah. it, but it, but it was actually something he reacted against. I mean, he wasn't. Um, that doesn't, you know, it's silly to try to use that to discredit his work. But you know, he, uh, you know, so so he understood kind of how these developmentalist projects were were going and and what the the forces were behind them at the time, which was, I think, an advantageous thing to to be aware of, but. You know, what's interesting to me is like Illich and, um, but also, you know, figures like Foucault, you know, are sort of um, responding and particularly in the European context to, you know, the kind of, they're, they're coming at the tail end of post-war, the sort of post-war peak of industrial production, right? And mm -hmm. the, the prosperity generated therefrom, right? And so they're, they're kind of at the writing of this pivot point where the problems with that model are becoming evident. Nobody quite knows where it's going to go, right? And, you know, for Illich, he's kind of initially very shaped by this kind of new left critique of like dehumanization and the machine and so on. For people like Foucault and the post-structuralists who are sort of anti-humanists, it's it's a bit different. Um, but the point is they're, they're at this moment, right, where, you know, we've got the the um, oil crisis, um, we've got, you know, various kinds of labor unrest that have sort of brought um, sort of, you know, Western industrial capitalism into crisis and have the, the, um, the sort of barons of capital starting to explore their options elsewhere and the beginnings of deindustrialization. And then the question is what kind of a society is going to come after this, right? And so Illich, I think, saw this initially as a moment of opportunity um, to kind of rethink our relationship to tools and to technology and to, you know, collectively develop some kind of constitution of limits, right? What, in what ways could we, um, could we kind of limit um, and circumscribe our use of tools so that they could serve humans and not the other way around? So, you know, I think he later kind of sees that this doesn't really go anywhere, the new left fails, and he sort of becomes more pessimistic in various ways, but, um, and even apocalyptic. Foucault, interestingly, and, and recently more infamously, you know, is sort of, in his later years, sort of flirting with neoliberalism and saying, yeah, maybe these, uh, 
maybe these Chicago boys are kind of onto something. Yeah, that's an maybe this greater autonomy. Right. Yeah, exactly. Maybe this kind of you know greater autonomy and so on is is a better model of subjectivity than you know the ones I've been critiquing. So without getting into that too much, I guess what what kind of interests me with Illich and his sort of fellow travelers who were initially kind of developing certain ideas about degrowth um, in the seventies at this, at this exact moment, you know, what's interesting to me is that um, I, I guess I would say that degrowth has in some way become the, uh, one of the sort of ideological doubles of capital itself in its current dispensation. Like that mm. it is, I, I mean, again, this relates to my point that, you know, lockdowns are not anti-capitalist action, quite the contrary. And I'm not sure that degrowth is either. I think it's, um, it's interesting that it, it's sort of become at least casually, I mean, you know, historically it's associated with these whatever kind of deep ecology kind of people or sort of Unabomber type of, mm-hmm. you know, quite yeah. obscure people. But I think now you see pretty prominent people in the media and in academia sort of saying, oh yeah, we've got to do degrowth. And what what that means practically for them, I don't know. But you know, it it it's become a kind of idea that that can be held uncontroversially in many kind of standard liberal professional milieus, as far as I can tell. And it seems to me interesting that you know what this coincides with is you know capitalism's own growth machine sort of sputtering as it as it basically becomes parasitic on central banks, right? That, that the only kind of growth that we seem to be able to have now is just, you know, quantitative easing, like injecting, you know, you know, clicking some buttons and just kind of um, injecting a couple more trillion into the economy. And there's no larger, you know, we might be critical of the developmentalist projects or the modernizing projects of an earlier time, but now there isn't really much like that, right? There's in fact, just this kind of um, this kind of holding pattern of of sort of emergency or crisis capitalism, where there's no real vision of. I mean, there ha- obviously there's growth in in China and places like that, right? But within the West, it, you know, we've basically entered into this situation where um, you know capitalism is this entirely and sort of capitalist growth are this entirely abstract operation that just has to be mm-hmm. propped up with these these kind of accounting tricks and right yeah it that, seems and like so, so degrowth yeah, is, is a weird ideology for our moment because it actually is coupled with this reality this sort of in a, this material reality right which is that the the economy has kind of ceased to i mean it's it's become just kind of this fully parasitic um kind of self-perpetuation of financial capital and you know that that means that in a sense degrowth is sort of a if 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 again you're you're sitting in a relatively comfortable position in the west and you're sort of you know pretending that china doesn't exist then it's it's sort of a it's it's an ideology that fits in rather nicely with um this this sort of you know completely sclerotic and sort of and you know totally anti-developmentalist um, kind of regime that we have now, right? Which is, yeah. I mean, it seems like degrowth is just adding some sort of self-justifying gloss to what's already been happening for decades. I mean, you can look at it demographically, like in terms of birth rates, family formation, um, right? I meant to mention new, that new, too. Yeah. new invention mm-hmm. and 
like, I don't know, like Peter Thiel has this distinction between bits and atoms. So like lots of new inventions in bits, like we get new social media, but we don't get any new inventions in atoms. I think it's a perfectly fine way to look at it. Yeah, there hasn't been much of that. And this is this has just sort of been the trend for 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 quite a long time. And so it, it's a bit odd and a little, a little pathetic even for like um like latter-day environmentalists to sort of um say, oh, I'm really in fit. We we've had too much growth apparently over the last several decades. And what we need is this like radical new ideology of of degrowth, but but describing uh d- describing uh situations where actually um very little growth. Of I think more kind of conventionally, like conventionally understood examples of growth, like you know population growth, um, new inventions, things like that, new territories, like what would you know colonizing planets in the solar system, something like that. That hasn't happened at all. Like it seems like degrowth has already been underway. It's interesting what you said about how like like lockdowns and capitalism, right? Like um, once all of those small businesses go go out of the mix it's like an excellent growth opportunity for amazon right that's basically uh that th- that that's kept jeff bezos among amongst like the what what like the two or three wealthiest people on the planet over the last few years thanks to the fact that he no longer has to compete with these irritating small businesses um yeah and so it, it, it's very i guess there's some conception like amongst the school of like so-called anti-capitalist thought that thinks that um, the lockdowns are good and small businesses are unimportant. You, they, don't you know they exploit their workers, et cetera? And, and, and they, there's probably some conception like one day um, Amazon will just be absorbed into the socialist state. Um, and there's no conception of like, no, if Amazon is absorbed into the socialist state, it'll like become the US Postal Service. Like the whole reason Amazon is so good at like, you know, making you feel like everything is so seamless though you're you're angry about their their warehouse exploitation is the fact that um you know bezos has found ways to like not have to play by any kind of uh by 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 bureaucratic rules like that that's like he he just found various kinds of loopholes um such as loopholes in terms of how he treats his labor that's why amazon works the way that it works like and that's why it's not the us postal service and i, I think there's a there, there's a kind of unwillingness to to process that but i think the kind of the telos of that thinking um why is it anti-capitalist to support all these small businesses being wiped out so that amazon gets even richer is some sort of idea like amazon is eventually supposed to be part of the perfect communist state or something which i i think is is um that just that that sounds wrong that that doesn't sound correct <laughs> to me right um, right yeah and it's i mean and and this definitely has been um you know I've, I've seen exactly this kind of stuff proposed right that you know getting rid of small businesses is is good because they're harder to unionize and i don't know it's like it it's you know I, i've seen all of these kind of rationales um trotted out in the last few years but you know, I think, um, you know, perhaps going back to Illustrator, a bit, I mean, another way that some people think about this that I don't know if we might find more congenial in some respects is some kind of notion of decommodification or of there being a kind of, I mean, and this would relate to the question of limits, right? Is, is there some way of 
of decommod. And I, I think I see both kind of right and left wing versions of this in, in the discourse, not really in practice. Right. But because I think that the kind of left wing version of decommodification would be something like, you know, social housing or um, socialized medicine. Um, the right wing version, I think, is more the the idea of trying to preserve the autonomy of communities, you know, um, mm-hmm. from from certain kinds of you know, pressures of the market and so on. Yeah, communities, family dynamics. um, These are the things that conservatives are are instinctively very resistant to seeing be commodified, even if they would rarely use that terminology. And and even if I'd say until recently, they had no, you know, the the conservative worldview kind of had offered no way of actually explaining why that was happening, right? Because at least in the U, I think in Europe, it was a bit different, but in the US, at least you had to sort of be, a free, you know, you were a fusionist, so you were basically a free marketeer on one hand, but then you had to sort of see the family as the bulwark against the the more um, dehumanizing aspects of capitalism. But you know that that didn't really work because you couldn't um, if if you believed in a kind of <clears throat> minimal restraint on capitalism, it was unclear how you thought the family could be protected other than by engaging in endless sort of culture war polemics against you know, uh, Ellen DeGeneres or whatever the nineties mm-hmm. uh, versions of this were, you know, that, that, um, that, and so I think that has changed at least again, and kind of somewhat recondite sort of intellectual settings on the right, that there is kind of a more, um, a, gr- a greater interest in how the state can be used to limit, um, the scope of the market in order to protect other goods that we want to keep as part of some sort of commons or something like that. I don't that. know. But, then, I, but, I, but I, I don't, think, but I, 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 but I don't think that's a big, I don't think that's filtered into any kind of particularly larger or meaningful right. program. But, yeah. I, I, th- you know. I thought that the, cause it seemed like the American right or American conservatives were kind of getting over what you called fusionism, which is like free marketism and like uh, sort of quasi-religious family value stuff associated with like Reagan and Bush and this kind of stuff. And it seemed like they were sort of moving past that and beginning to absorb maybe some ideas from like the European new right. And that's something maybe intellectually interesting would happen among American conservatives, but you know, leaving aside some individually interesting figures, it doesn't seem like among conservative institutions that's happened at all. Um, And actually we're seeing now, like at the end of the day, when there's something like, you know, there's a war happening on the other side of the world, which, you know, whatever we might think about, uh, you know, who's right and who's wrong there, chances are the U.S. military should stay the hell out of it. Um, But conservatives seem to, at least institutionally, seem to be kind of falling back to this older setting of like, no, no, we need to get get involved. And like when push comes to shove, when it comes to things like how do you think about state interventions into the economy, the kind of um, like right wing economic populism, which was sort of personified by Trump, at least during his like 2016 campaign, sort of has fallen by the wayside. I think they've actually it seems like they've lost the argument. And, and it didn't work. And it was partially because Trump, of course, wasn't actually taking anything he was saying seriously. He was just trying to outflank his rivals on the right where they were weak. And he sensed that they were weak on the, around those kinds of issues. Um, yeah, so th- there's sort of been this reversion to type um, amongst American right wingers. And it's yeah. as if this kind of dabbling with European conservative ideas never took place 
at all. And I don't know why that is. I, I guess I guess there's an, there's analogous things happening with the American left where sort of uh, evolutions you keep kind of expecting to see happen because it would make sense um, don't actually seem to, to happen. Um, and I, I don't know what the explanation for that kind of sclerosis is. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, you know, again, th- there are probably various kind of institutional arguments about incentives that we could bring into this, but, but I agree that, uh, yeah, there's, it's not as of, as of this point, there's been a kind of intellectual opening up, you know, comparable to some things that you saw in the more kind of interesting areas of the, the sort of liberal side in in the past 10 years, but I, I don't think it's really amounted to, to much of anything, but, um, since you brought up Ukraine, um, maybe we could, I mean, so you brought up before this, uh, you know, how to blow up a pipeline, mm, right. This book by, um, this book by Andrea's Andrew, mom, and, mm-hmm, um, yes. who, who, um, you know, is kind of a, a fashionable thinker of this, I suppose. I assume he's a sort of degrowth advocate or something. Well, like that. he he's, I mean, the work by him I've read, which I guess is actually is, is quite a lot. It's not like he 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 actually puts himself forward in that way. Um, and he isn't even like anti-nuclear per se. He just kind of doesn't bring it up. Um, right. right. The point the the point is really like how do we galvanize active uh, these activist networks in order to shut down pipelines, but it's always these like geographically cherry-picked pipelines that just happen to be located right where his neighbors that annoy him. Uh, are are living right? It's like his fellow Swedes or his fellow Scandinavians or it's Canadians or it's Americans. Um, yeah, and but what does he think? I mean, so what does so, he so, think so, happens so the, when the, you? Right, right. So, so, so <laughs> the logic. I mean, this is what I mean. The logic of um, always focus on the subtraction of climate. Always talking about renewable energy, meaning windmills and solar, both of which I, I think are pretty good, especially solar. I think I'm on the whole more more impressed by, by, uh, by technological developments in solar than with wind power. But anyway, uh, leaving that aside, lots of emphasis from the climate movement on those kinds of things. And just kind of um, not saying very much at all about nuclear power or when something does get said, it's rather negative. Um, usually nothing gets said at all as if it's not even on the table. And like, you have to kind of like look at these parts and say, okay, well, what do these things amount to? Like the only way you can kind of make sense of this is to say, Okay, the idea is that the total number, that the total wattage that the human species is supposed to be consuming by the year 2050 is apparently supposed to go way down because because otherwise it just doesn't make sense. Like you would have to build like you'd have to build like a million new wind turbines in Germany in order to like take all of the uh, the coal and gas uh, energy uh, energy output offline unless you're going to build uh, a few dozen nuclear power plants, but it doesn't really seem like that's what Greta Thunberg is advocating for either. Um, so it's sort of like, it's, it's like implicitly degrowth, but I, I don't think it's like, I don't think it's intellectually very like consciously worked out. I mean, I mean, no, for some people, it is people who are explicitly anti-growth or anti-growth and I can respect that. That's a position. Um, I, I would sort of rather that we like, not reduce the human population down to a billion, but, but, you know, I I understand where that position is coming from, but I I think the more kind of contemporary radical and uh, sort of environmental and climate politics is just kind of mentally avoiding 
uh, that kind of like chain of questioning altogether. They're not thinking about growth or degrowth. They're just thinking about um, this particular abstraction and trying to use it as a particular kind of rhetorical bully pulpit in a particular um, sort of, I guess, framework of political incentives that they find themselves within. That that's sort yeah. of that's sort of my view of it. Um, that book, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. I mean, it was sort of heavily. I don't know. It was like you know, it was sort of high profile reviewed in the Times and the New Yorker. And I haven't been to an Upper West Side apartment in a long time. I I, I don't get invited to those places anymore. I used to be. Um, but I assume that there it's adorning certain coffee tables in that neighborhood. And yet, it is like one of these kinds of books where. If you're wondering about, well, does this mean growth or degrowth? You're not going to get any answers. If you're wondering about what this means for um, our policy vis-a-vis China, like should we start refusing to import things that don't, like that have a, you know, you can show the production of how it was mass produced in China, say the mass production of, um, of, uh, of, of medical masks, for example. If you can show it has a bad carbon footprint, should we boycott those products or something? Not mentioned. Um, if China is mentioned, maybe this might be from another book by mom. If China is mentioned, it's just to say something like, well, this is really the fault of ravenous Western consumers. Otherwise, this China thing wouldn't even be a thing. So again, it just comes down to the West and how we need to, we need to blow up stuff in the West. It, it, it's, 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 just, it's not interesting if those are the kinds of questions that one is interested in, which if you're like interested in the real world, I, I think that that one ought to be. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think this, um, you know, as I'm I'm sort of trying to, again, elaborate this idea of degrowth and related ideas and how they're, you know, in a sense, they're, you know, they're embraced by this kind of quasi priestly class of, you know, basically the media and academia, right, of and and you know in some sense as we said they're they're sort of um, providing a sort of ideological cover for things that are already happening right. Um, but and and in, and are are the you know they're in a sense um, the the cap, the sort of mode of capitalism that that you know under which dispensation they're operating is is in some ways kind of um, is is kind of in agreement with some version of degrowth I would say but um, I you know so I think it it sort of makes sense that it really is this kind of quasi-religious um, kind of cult, right? <laughs> that, that I almost want to say where, um, they, I mean, these ideas don't really have to be squared with reality because the function of them is is something else. Like the function well, of them is not is... particularly practical. It's it's a kind of, it's a, it, it really has to do with a, a kind of internal, almost spiritual relation to the larger situation they find themselves in and, and yeah, trying to kind of justify word... their status within it. This is why the word woke resonates with everyone. Yeah, right. Right. I mean, you're still not supposed, it's still considered impolite to like say this word in an academic setting, which is silly. This is the word everyone uses. People who are are supportive of what we call wokeness also basically say woke. Um, Like they might be on the defensive. They don't like it when it's used uh, disparagingly, but because the word woke sounds like the word awakening, right? As in the great awakening. It's just that, if these are religious currents, these are religious currents that are not grounded in any kind of intelligent, like uh, theological system for understanding the meaning of life or any of those kinds of like core foundational issues that any, any like religion worth, worth 
being called a religion ought to have are, are not present. And so it, as a religions go, it's a very, it's a very weird one. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, it, 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 right. And it's, I mean, it's weird as well because it, I mean, on one hand, it's sort of apocalyptic. It's, you know, it, it's kind of this, um, it, it's very much, I mean, again, through this kind of, gra- you know, this kind of intense emotional relation to graphs and models and things like that. It, it's always based on this idea that, you, you know, you are, it's always telling you like how many years you have left. And, you know, so it sort of resembles these weird, you know, calculating from the Bible, what the end of the year, the end of the world is going to be. And then just kind of, um, then your, your role is to kind of, you know, wait around and kind of cleanse yourself spiritually. But then, but then they also, you know, will sort of engage in and endorse these certain actions that are somehow improbably supposed to, forestall this um promised end but you know that it's it's yeah, a very yeah, it's, it's a very odd, odd it, thing it, it's like yeah. an apocalyptic religion which also selectively talks about ways to forestall or even yeah. just completely eliminate the idea of apocalypse altogether so it's it's yeah. not and then and then its relationship to growth to bring it back to to that issue Usually yeah. a well-designed religion sort of addresses that very head on. Like, here's how you're going to be forming families. Here's going to be the nature of the relationship between um, children to parents and, 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 and like children to community. Here's kind of how the, the power dynamics and ownership dynamics are going to work. This is, these are the sort of, these are the stories you're going to tell, tell your children. Um, this kind of thing. Well, none of that is worked out in, in this new sort of quasi-religious current. Um, this is why it doesn't know whether it wants to grow or shrink or, or degrow. Yeah. Um, and and so, so it seems like it, it would it would be better if it would just come out of the closet as religious. And then like it, it desperately needs its uh, theologians to, to actually say something interesting about about what the kind of belief system is. And you, you, I, I think maybe part of the issue is that a lot of the people involved imagine themselves to be anti-religious, like anti-religion. Um, and so they can't like mentally process that necessary first step of like saying, oh no, belief systems are important to human beings. It like undergirds everything. And so we need to figure out what ours is. Otherwise we're just gonna sort of have this sort of weird intersectional coalition of different sort of petty interest groups whose agenda actually uh, like cancel, cancel each other out, which I think is sort of the situation that, that, that that's happening now. I don't know. In your neck of yeah. the woods, academically, was intersectionality a big thing? It certainly loomed large as a term uh, uh, for me. Um, not not while I was doing my PhD. No, interesting. It was it was still all a bit more, you know, it, it was a bit more sort of um, still caught up in all the the different you know conflicting schools of. I mean, in that context, conflicting schools of sort of post structuralism. Basically, what you know, the question was whether you were a sort of new historicist, aka Foucauldian, or a um, or a Derridian sort of deconstructionist, or perhaps a post colonial person. Like those are those are probably the main frameworks. I guess the post colonial one would be the one that would most likely you know, introduce some kind of intersectionality discussion, but it just didn't really come up in my sort of literary studies. Right. And now, now I'm sort of not really, you know, doing much in the way of academic publication anymore. So I don't but really at know. NYU, I'm sure, I'm sure it, it's there now. It, I'm sure it's there now. Oh yeah. NYU, is it not a term you're just constantly oh, yeah, surrounded with, by? In terms of the sort of administration and the 
you know, DEI right. bureaucracy and so on. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, it seems like it was a term that was kind of more developed for social scientists, law schools, the more kind of managerial. It comes out of law, right? Because it's um, it comes out of like a uh, lawsuit that, you know. That's right. Um, yeah. Kimberly Crenshaw writes about, I believe. But so yeah. it has this kind of like professional managerial orientation in a way that, well, I wasn't sure. It, it seems like yeah, it doesn't. It, it, I wouldn't think it would. It would interact well with the way in which people in humanities departments think. But on the other hand. I know that humanities departments are themselves like massively under assault and are probably changing extremely fast. And, you know, are they really the kinds of places where people are, you know, uh, debating the transition from new historicism to post-structuralism anymore? I, that, that's the humanities yeah, I remember I mean, from college, but yeah. is that really what's done institutionally I, anymore? I, I've sort of lost touch in a sense uh, with what's going on more broadly and just kind of occupy my weird little niche. But yeah, I mean, I think certainly there's been a huge turn towards, I mean, I wrote something I wrote about um, around what had happened for the Chronicle was, uh, you know, when like the University of Chicago English Department, which is probably, you know, by many measures, sort of the most prestigious in the country, you know, had this announcement that it would only admit PhD students who would focus on Black studies, right? And this- yeah. Oh, I noticed that. Know, I mean, yeah. so I had a whole sort of analysis of that, which, you know, brings together some interesting, you know, different institutional imperatives. Um, but so I think, yeah, there's a lot of that kind of stuff going on, no doubt, um, in the past couple of years. And and it usually is useful because they're trying to they're they're trying to cut back, you know, PhD programs in the humanities anyway, finally, because you know, there are lines that aren't being renewed. Yeah, that is a, that, that's renewed a, that's and the, that's and a degrowth the, position I support. Our institution. Oh yeah, PhD little... programs should I mean, mm -hmm. absolutely. They should, they should shrink. That's, that's a kind of degrowth I can get with. And, and also a kind of, um, you know, I, I suppose the, the Elitchian lesson here would be, you know, a kind of, uh, attempt to return the humanities to the commons in some form, um, or in various possible forms is at least something I'm, you know, tentatively trying to, trying to work on. I mean, I think there, there are various versions of it, but, um, you know, there are a lot of people just like offering offering like pretty cheap classes online that are sort of, you know, yeah, it is very high strange level what, high level humanities seminars. So I think that's it, basically good. And I've, if you I've came done of it age, myself. If you came of age, like in, in, in the U.S. anyway, at a particular time, I, I, we're probably like more or less the same age. So like in the 90s, early aughts, something like that. And let's say you were someone who really, really loved like reading, I don't know, old French novels. It is strange that like the best idea the U.S. during that time could come up with for you is like, well, then you should get like a French literature PhD and become a French literature professor so that then you can be. And what are you going to be doing for the rest of your life as a French literature professor? Well, you're going to be like managing all of these like petty summer grants for your like, you know, overproduced PhD students who are fighting over the ever diminishing pod of like uh, summer research grants. And that's what you're going to be doing because when you were 17, you said how much you love Flaubert. That's why it, it's a complete, I mean, I think this is changing. I, I don't think that a zoomer who really loves to read Flaubert, I don't think they're going to have the same life trajectory. I really hope not, but it's yeah, a very same. strange <laughs> thing that, 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 that's what happened. Like, uh, like, yeah, like, like in the nineties and aughts. 
Yeah, and I think it does reflect this kind of radical monopolization that that Illich talks about, right? That um, you know, where you have these institutions that manage to posit themselves as kind of the only place where a certain kind of activity can be done and be recognized as such, right? And so I think that's sort of part of what's going on there that, you know, this, I mean, you know, you have this kind of mid-century, like middle-brow appreciation of literature, right? Um, that, you know, was a semi-significant part of American life at one time. And, uh, you know, what, I mean, interestingly, when the, precisely the period when the boomers go into academia and, you know, these kind of radical currents go into it, it also is this, this kind of privatization of the sort of commons of, of the humanities, right, where it, it, it becomes this, you know, increasingly um, professionalized and sort of, uh, you know, in many ways, obscurantist enterprise, right, which is, which is actually explicitly trying to kind of create these bodies of esoteric knowledge that, that are, that are not accessible and to make, you know, and to make interest in Flaubert or whoever, you know, kind of, kind of lead to that direction. Of course, you know, I'm somebody who followed that path and got immersed in such an, um, such a, a situation, but, um, but, you know, it's, it's definitely uh, a, a part of a larger pattern, I would say. It's very striking over the last 10 years, maybe, maybe more like eight or nine years. Um, I've just found that some of like my most intellectually stimulating moments have been when I find some random lecture on YouTube, which might not even be from an academic. It might be from a total autodidact or maybe some like unsuccessful politician in Britain who has some sort of random idea about punch and Judy puppet shows. And so I just listen and it's like totally riveting. And it's like kind of this wake up call uh, that as you're saying, there has been this kind of like totally unwarranted monopolization of um, like who gets to have, who gets to deliver um, interesting lectures about, you know, historical peasant puppet shows or whatever. Um, why does it have to be an academic that's doing that? Why can't it just be this relatively random person? Now, maybe I was able to appreciate the lecture um, for reasons also having to do with my education in ways I'm not like consciously aware of that that is possible. But um, yeah, it does, it does kind of seem like a kind of recommunization of, uh, of that kind of figure um, has a lot of like, uh, uh, beneficial things to to say for itself. I, I, I definitely, that, that strongly resonates with me. And it's weird for me because I myself am a professor. So I obviously derive my livelihood. I have tenure. So it's like a very secure livelihood um, this way. And yet at the same time, like when I'm doing the dishes, I'm finding some random lecturer. Like I don't, I don't really want to read academic journal articles. I would kind of rather find something on YouTube that just sort of seems weird and kind of like somewhat undisciplined and like the, the stuff that uh, there'll be in it that won't make sense and I'll ignore it, but there'll be some sort of like flair of creative genius in it. And like, that's what I want. And I'm, and I'm getting that less and less from like peer reviewed journal articles. Um, I find uh, as, as they're sort right. of becoming more and more, they're becoming like ideologically narrow and, and formulaic and rigid kind of a, a, around uh, I don't know w whether the issue is climate change or racial justice, et cetera. There's this kind of narrowness, which is, um, which is boring. It, it's not intellectually yeah. stimulating once it becomes narrow and formulaic. 
Yeah, and so, I mean, I guess this also points to the kind of paradoxical role of of technology, right? Where on one hand, it's, um, you know, and Illich, interestingly, when, you know, when he was writing his critique of school was very, um, was very positive about, you know, computers as they existed then and had a, he had a sort of, you know, initial understanding of sort of network, you know, of, of how computers could be networked and the limited way that was happening all the way back in the 70s. But you know, so he he saw this as opening lots of opportunities for this kind of collaborative learning that could happen outside of institutions. So he really, um, you know, he he was he was proven right in some respects. On the other hand, it's interesting that, you know, I mean, kind of going back to the whole theme of subversive mobility. You know, we have this kind of opening up of a subversive mobility of of information, at least, or of ideas or whatever, that are are suddenly enabled to kind of spread through all of these unauthorized channels. And then, you know, in the past several years, what we've seen is a series of sort of crackdowns and attempts to sure. yeah. recently regulate those. So I think it it kind of fits back into your, right. your broader well, well, theme so- in that way. And of course, links directly to the truckers, just to finish the thought that, you know, <laughs> where, you know, there, there was an attempt to kind of prevent them from communicating with each other, prevent people from donating to them, prevent, you know, coordination through these technologies. And so that, you know, speaks to the the intersection of these two situations. Yeah, there, it seems like there's sort of these two phases of computer and digital slash internet technology that happen in, in the technological history there, where there's this kind of like, there's this phase where it's very wide open, and it's like this new technological infrastructure for facilitating like you know, like spontaneous exchange of like uh, of ideas and spontaneously form new kinds of communities. And then sometime maybe like in the late aughts or early teens, there's a sort of a pivot to a more kind of surveillance driven, centralized um, form. I mean, you experience this in the internet with like the transition from blogs to social media, right? Where instead of like just you know, they're just being like millions of blogs out there. It's all super decentralized and like no, no one's really, and there's no like central control mechanism. Instead, it just all goes to like, now it all goes to like Twitter and Facebook, increasingly like maybe even just Twitter, which is extremely centralized and can control things like, you know, if they don't want anyone posting articles about Hunter Biden's laptop at that particular month, then it's just not going to happen. They'll wait for some future month to give us permission to think about it. Um, yeah, and, and and it would have been unthinkable for it to go down that way in like 2002. And so there's this interesting, with, with digital infrastructures in particular, there's kind of this like two-way, this sort of interesting duality of possibility there. It's either ex- incredibly liberating of kind of decentralizing, de- decentralized possibilities, or it's like the perfect centralized surveillance apparatus. And, and that's like not really as true with more kind of like traditional transportation infrastructures where you can sort of look at one and say, yeah, trains are really good for centralized control, but like, you know, people using mules in order to get across like uh, this mountain range in Mexico, that's pretty hard to surveil, period. And, and like, you can't even see the mules from satellite or anything like that if they're under uh, under under uh, forest canopy. Um, yeah. And yes. Yeah, go, go ahead. I, I'm going to have to... Um take another call in a minute. So um, we'll have to close close this discussion. But uh, I was kind of curious to get your thoughts on, you know, then these attempts to create these, you know, sort of alternative 
information infrastructures around, you know, basically the blockchain and things like that. And I mean, sure. the thing that I've always found paradoxical about those is that, you know, I mean, and, and I'm, I'm very, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm still not sure what I think about any of that. I sort of, you know, I know smart people who are very bullish and smart people who are very um, skeptical. So mm-hmm. I guess I fall somewhere in between, but, you know, one thing that's interesting is that it, you know, it, it is still a technology that relies on the physical infrastructure that, you know, this, that, you know, our internet relies on. Um, and so whatever kinds of workarounds or kind of, you know, subversive pathways or channels, it, it's able to um, forge to kind of um, navigate around these, the sort of heavy hand of the restrictive state or these sort of privatized pseudo states, you know, it's still, it's still um, dependent on these kind of physical mobilities that are embodied in these kind of infrastructures that, um, that, yeah, carry, the, the, that carry electricity, that carry signals and so on. But, you know, so, you know, that that's always seemed like a bit of a paradox about the whole thing, especially it's embraced by kind of anarchists and libertarians. But I don't know if you have any maybe closing yeah, thoughts on that whole phenomenon. I guess just very briefly, um, you know, on the cover of my first book, there's a carrier pigeon, which to me is like the perfect metaphor and actually really existing alternative in terms of um, f- uh, for non-surveillable communication, like because the pigeon's just flying across the sky, carrying a little scrolled up message and you can shoot it down, but you don't know which bird is the one with the message. It's very difficult to surveil when there's communication by carrier pigeon. Of course, it's rather old fashioned. Um and so you could sort of think of like, well, the alternatives sort of break down to carrier pigeon versus blockchain. Um, and I thought of what you're saying about, I, I too have very smart friends who are very bullish on uh, blockchain, uh, basically communication uh, technologies, or I guess like like uh, programming, uh, 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 programming, um, uh, uh, programming design. And yeah, it, it does sort of seem like, I guess the claim that people who are bullish on the blockchain would make is that because it's always kind of anonymous, which hosting computer actually contains the critical info, because it's like just anonymized and it's, it's like it's placed further up the blockchain. Um, and supposedly it can't really be like hacked and like funds can't be stolen um, because uh, of, of this kind of uh, like trust fee process where there's like, there's this like consensus that, that, that develops around what was actually established farther up the blockchain. But in other words, it's, it, would, it would be difficult for like a Trudeau-like figure to figure out which particular satellite or which particular computer needs to be denied electricity. That's the claim. Um, See, I'm yeah, not smart enough sense. to know yeah. how to assess, mm-hmm. but I'm not smart enough, especially when it comes to this stuff, to know how to assess whether the claim is right. There might be people who are even smarter than the um, the designers of Bitcoin and Ethereum, who are like even smarter than them, who will be hired to figure out some way to do precisely that. But but I don't know whether that's a nonsensical statement or not. So yeah, to me, it breaks down to either carrier pigeon or blockchain. Um, either something very old or something very new, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Great. Well, I, you know, point my listeners to Jacob's books, which, you know, speaks to some of these issues that we've been discussing, which are very current, but, you know, bring some surprising historical context and examples that many might be unfamiliar with. So, um, yeah, thanks for the conversation. It's been interesting and wide ranging. And yeah, absolutely. We can perhaps I, talk I'm... again sometime. 
I, I'm totally going to look up uh, uh, your guy, Illich. Uh, that, yeah, that sounds yeah. fascinating. Um, Definitely. I'm glad yeah. you brought him to my attention. Yeah, I'll be curious to get your take because I'm I'm still sort of trying to figure out mine because I have a sort of, I, I suppose, a mixed view. I mean, I, I've learned a lot from him, but I also, you know, think there are certain things he he couldn't or he he didn't quite um, grasp about what was happening at the moment when he was writing. So in All any right, case, great. thanks so much. Yep. Take care, Jeff.